Hi, I'm Katina Horton, the Love and Freedom Toxic Relationship Recovery Coach. And tonight I'm going to talk about three situations where the countenance of the narcissist changes, part one. Once again, tonight's topic is three situations where the countenance of the narcissist changes, part one. And we all know that we believe in doing what? Wearing a tie so we can make an impact, right? That's the A tie dash I method. That means we analyze, troubleshoot, implement, empower, and impact. And so if there's anything that's said as a value in this video, if you can just go ahead and share the video with someone else uh, that you love and care about, someone else that may need to hear it, someone else that might need to be set free and delivered tonight. And I thank you so much for doing that. Now we're going to get right into the message, okay? So when someone's countenance changes, it means that their whole attitude and disposition changes towards you, okay? And so one thing about when it comes to a narcissist, it's so obvious when their attitude has changed towards you, right? It's, there's no denying. There's no like, well, maybe, you know, I was just thinking, I don't know. It seems like they're looking at me different. No, it's obvious when their attitude has changed towards you, right? And so the thing about it, though, is that when you are in a relationship with a narcissist, right, it leaves you, I guess I would say probably 95% of the time on Fantasy Island, like that show that was popular back in the 80s, right? The plane, the plane, right? You on Fantasy Island where all of your dreams come true. And when you're on Fantasy Island, what you do, you just sit up there and you have, you go into like magical thinking land, right? and you're not dealing with reality, you are in cognitive dissonance, which means that what you value, right, and all of your integrity is not lining up with the way that you are living, okay? And so what happens is that uh, you ignore the obvious. And what is the obvious? The obvious is the truth. This person has changed towards you. They were always mean and nasty. However, there's a shift that has taken place and they've slowly started pulling away from you and you don't want to admit it. Okay. And so what happens is that, like I said, you would rather endure cognitive dissonance and magical thinking than to deal with the reality that there's a combination of this person staring at you, right? Their attitude changing against you, towards you rather, them looking you up and down, right? them looking at you with contempt. And then sometimes even with like shame and disgust and like, oh, I just can't even stand being around you, that type of look, okay? So all of that is what is going on when the narcissist countenance changes, okay? And to be honest, their behavior and attitude was never good. It was always abusive, right? Love bombing is when one person worships another person with the sole purpose of grooming them for abuse. And then we want to go through what? Devaluation. That's when one individual takes the people, places, things, and ideas that another person values and devalues them, right? For the sole purpose of isolating the other individual and also uh, causing that individual to become strictly dependent upon them, okay? Fusing with them, and leading them to adopt an orphan spirit and reject the spirit of adoption that we've been given by Jesus's death on the cross. That's what devaluation is, right? So none of that is good. 
And when you have the orphan spirit, that's based upon what? Fear, abandonment, and rejection, okay? And so, like I said, when a person's countenance changes, it's not like all of a sudden they've become abusive. No, they've, they've bumped it up three, four, five levels maybe even, okay? They've bumped it up, as my mother would say, to a whole nother level, right? And so when a person's countenance changes, initially you start trying to rationalize their behavior by saying, oh, you, well, girl, you know he was just having a bad day. And then it turns to, girl, you know he was just having a bad week. And then it changes over to you. Well, you know, it's just kind of been a bad month for him. You know, he's been doing his taxes and whatnot. So it's just kind of a bad time, right? And then that bad, what? The bad week turns into a bad month and the bad month turns into a bad year, right? And you just keep on and on and on making excuses for him. But at this point, his whole countenance has changed. He starts pulling back from you, looking at you with a, a combination, like I said, of a, change in attitude, disposition, right? Shame and contempt and disgust, just you being in his eyesight. And if it's the man with the female narcissist being in her eyesight, it's just like, oh, I just can't even stand to look at you. You disgust me, that type of look. That's how it is when the countenance has changed, okay? So I just want to prepare you for that, right? And so the thing about it is that what happens is you'll start making up excuses and you'll start going around with the same coping mechanism that you've used all these years. Well, girl, you know, Charles loves me and he takes care of me and he provides for the kids and we have a whole lot of money in the bank. What does all of that have to do with the way that Charles is treating you? You see what I'm saying? But that cognitive dissonance, right? And that magical thinking leads you to go to that what famous phrase, two, three lines that you have said all of these years, right? In order for you to be able to stay in that abusive marriage. And then you don't even really realize it yourself. It's like everybody else on the outside is looking at you like, well, what are you talking about? What does, <laughs> how much money he have in the bank and what he's providing for you as far as material wise, what does that have to do with his treatment of you, but you don't even notice all of that because you're too caught up, you know, with the coping mechanism. And, and trust me, I understand how that is because I've been there and done that and checked off all of those boxes, right? And so we got Cain and Abel. They were two brothers, Adam and Eve's children, and they both brought their sacrifices to God, okay? But then we got two different pictures going on. You got Cain who brought some of the land of his produce, right? He brought some produce from the land. And then you got Abel who brought his firstborn and fat portions is how the scripture describes it, right? And then in the scripture, it says, the man was intimate with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, okay? The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? <laughs> and why do you look despondent? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? So in other words, he's just like, like, what's wrong with you? Like, what's wrong with your face? Like your whole countenance, your whole disposition has changed. What is going on, right? And that's often the case when we see people come in, they were one way and all of a sudden 
I mean, it's like a 360. It's like you don't even know what to do with that. And then it makes you uncomfortable and, you know, makes the whole room uncomfortable because they are basically controlling the room with their attitude and disposition, making everybody else uncomfortable. And they know what they're doing. That's the thing about it. That is part of control, right? And so then it says, but if you do what is right, if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? And God already knew where he was. He just wanted to see how Cain was going to respond. Kind of like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? Asking them like, where are you and what you doing type of thing. God already knew, you know, <laughs> what was going on. He was going to see if they were going to fess up to their sin. If they were going to admit it, they were going to repent, et cetera. But they didn't. They just passed the buck down. You know, the man, oh, the woman you gave me, right? He blamed God. And then the woman, oh, the serpent told me to do it, right? The serpent didn't have anybody to blame but himself, so to speak, right? So this is what was going on when it came to um, this death of uh, Abel. When Cain killed Abel, it's just like, wait a minute, wait. God's trying to see if he's going to fess up to what he did. But instead it says, then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? <laughs> you see how he got smart, Alec, with God, right? This is God, God Almighty, the creator of the universe. And first of all, he lied. I don't know. And then am I my brother's guardian? You see what I'm saying? And it was kind of like smart alecky slash sarcasms kind of mixed in there, right? And then it said, then he said, what have you done? <laughs> your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its shield, its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. That's a lot, isn't it? That is really a lot. And so when the Bible compares two individuals, any two individuals, you think about it even with Leah and Rachel, right? It's setting you up, right? It's giving you the history and the background so you will know why whatever happened, happened, so to speak, right? And it's just like if you go to the therapist's office and you got like eight to 10 uh, pages to fill out these forms and you're just like, oh my goodness, you get this packet. They want to know your emotional and mental history of your family, right? That way, when you start telling them all of this different drama that's going on, they can go like, okay, I see the grandfather had this disorder, right? And then the grandmother, the maternal grandmother had this going on. They can have a point of reference. You see what I'm saying? Otherwise, it's just like them reaching into the dark. So when the scripture sets this up for us, it wants to give us this whole picture, this comparison to let us know this is why this happened. And it makes me think about with Leah and Rachel, how they talked about Leah having a weak eye and Rachel being sh uh, shapely and beautiful. And then Leah being hated and Rachel being loved. So it set that up so we can see how that played a role in their relationship with their husband, who was Jacob. Right. And so it's no different when it comes to Cain and Abel. OK. And instead of Cain trying to uh, go to Abel and see what it was like that he did with his sacrifice and kind of compare it to his own to see, not for comparison, for the sake of coming down on himself, but to be able to learn, he didn't do that. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes things happen 
And it's like the Lord gives us time when we could sit down and say, man, I need to just try to have a come to Jesus moment. Why does this keep happening to me? This, this keeps happening over and over again. Or, you know, uh, I see so-and-so was able to get accepted into this program. Maybe I could talk to them and see if it's something that I missed in my marketing, something I missed in my essay, you know, like that type of thing. He didn't do any of that. His own, the only solution he came up with was killing his brother. And you know what happens is that that comes from a scarcity mindset. Because in Cain's mind, killing his brother, that was the only feasible solution, right? And so, like I said, the thing about it is that still didn't solve his problem. Because he's got more of a situation going on now, right? He's got the consequences to his actions. His brother is dead, right? And his sacrifice still has not been accepted. And what happened as well is that Cain wanted to go up under his own authority. He did not want to go up under God's authority. He didn't want to be up under anybody's, anybody's authority. And reason why I say that is because of the fact that he already knew how the sacrifices were supposed to be given. That was a given, right? So he rejected as Hosea 4 and 6 talks about when he say, my people destroyed it for lack of knowledge. We like the beginning part of that verse. We don't like the ending part where he says, okay, so since you reject knowledge, I'm going to reject you. And guess what? I'm going to reject your kids as well. We don't like that part. We like the idea of like, you know, we're going around ignorant because we haven't been, you know, given knowledge of certain things, but we don't like the part of like, okay, so you got the knowledge. You are now at the knowledge to become a knowledge addiction, so to speak, right? But you're not doing anything with it. We're not applying it. You see what I'm saying? But we keep talking about what it is we're in, the situation we're in, what he's doing, what she's doing, but we're not implementing any of the tools that we have uh, learned, so to speak, right? And so what happens is that Cain suffered a narcissistic injury. When God decided he was not going to accept Cain's sacrifice, in turn, it led to a domino effect. Cain suffered a narcissistic injury. And this injury happens when an individual that's a narcissist, right? Someone says something to them that triggers a childhood wound. And if it doesn't trigger a childhood wound, what it does is that it kind of knocks at their ego, that image they've got, uh, they have from that false sense of self. It knocks into it, kind of chips away at it. And what that narcissistic injury does, it leads over into narcissistic rage, right? And so what happens is that the rage is so pronounced that it literally looks like a cartoon effect going on where the individual's head, like the cartoons, when the person gets so mad, they turn red and then the top of their head pops off. That's what happens when a person has narcissistic rage. Their eyes sometimes change colors, right? Or either you, the pupils look different, their face is contorted, right? And then, like I said, you would think that like the whole head is going to pop off. It's literally demonic. It's straight from the pit, right? And so after they've had this manifestation of a rage where you think they are literally going to kill you when they get just that angry, it's a lot of women, actually, if nothing else has made them leave, a lot of them will leave once they witness narcissistic rage from their narcissistic partner. Sometimes that will get women to leave. And then other times uh, the person, their partner will rage. 
they'll see it. And just as quick as the rage came on, it'll settle down like nothing ever happened. And then in turn, the woman goes back to Fantasy Island and into the magical thinking. The cognitive dissonance sets in. And once again, she starts telling herself that Charles takes care of the children. He provides for the children. They have a, a good house and, and good cars and their kids go to good schools and they're in all these extracurricular activities. And Charles has a lot of money in the bank. And so then that coping mechanism reinforces the knowledge addiction, reinforcing the comfort addiction, reinforcing the approval addiction, reinforces the love addiction. And guess what? She stays, right? She keeps going in that lack cycle. Okay. And so, like I said, when it comes to uh, the narcissistic rage, it's something that you really do not want to witness. It rocks your, co uh, your soul down to the core. I mean, it rocks the core of your soul down. It shakes it up because everything that's inside of that individual that they've been holding down inside, they basically use everybody else in the room as a poison container for. So you can only imagine if it's one person, they are really going to get it. And there's only three things that we can do when we have a clutter, trauma clutter, I would call it. Okay. And any kind of clutter is just like with your home. So we have trauma clutter. There's only one of three things we can do with it, right? We can give it away by blowing our trauma through someone else, right? And nobody wants it or needs somebody else's trauma, right? We can throw it away, which means that you process it properly and you move on, right? Or we can keep it. And when you keep it, you internalize it. And all of that self-hatred and contempt and disgust you have for yourself, it goes inside, right? And it, it does what? It leads to depression is what happens, right? And so when uh, the narcissistic individuals go into narcissistic rage, the main purpose of them doing that is to invoke fear in that other individual. And even if that person had like set up boundaries and all of a sudden became assertive, that rage is to make you change your mind about whatever boundary it is that you set up. You see what I'm saying? Poor Abel, he didn't even have a chance to even think about any of that because Cain said, what, let's go out to the field. And they went out to the field. And the next thing you know, he let him have it. And so there are some situations that if we're not careful and paying attention to our gut instinct, right? And then that energy of the other person and paying attention to the discernment that the Holy Spirit has given us, we could end up in some dangerous situations just like Abel did. When you notice somebody's disposition have changed and then all of a sudden they're saying, let's go out to the field or let's go out wherever, let's go outside the job and talk about it. And their whole entire disposition have changed. That is cause for concern. You see what I'm saying? Like you need to be jetting like yesterday out of there, peacing out. And sometimes it can be the situation where you might have to set up boundaries. Like if it's the workplace, you know, some situations, if it's super dangerous, of course, you might have to leave the job. If not, you might have to set up boundaries once you see this has happened. It's a challenge working with narcissists in any type of uh, setting. Any type of setting is a, is a challenge working with them, let alone being married to them or being in a uh, romantic partnership with them. So you're working with them and or uh, it's a situation where that person is in your family. It can be a challenge. You have to be on your P's and Q's. Once the person's countenance has changed, all of the abuse is going to get bumped up to another level. And like I said, in some instances, that's when it turns to murder. And that's why a lot of times what happens at these jobs, 
you have individuals who have gone to the bosses and told them about what certain people are doing. And a lot of times what happens is I like to call them the troublemakers, the people who everybody know who they are. It's obvious the boss knows, but the boss is scared to go and deal with them, right? So they let it keep building up and building up and building up and building up. And everybody keeps going to the boss and the boss is not doing anything about it. Usually by the time the boss decides to do something about it, that person's countenance has changed so that you're afraid something's going to happen right then and there inside of the job. So then that's the point where uh, your supervisor will go to whoever's the director department or over them, right? Somebody in management. They'll decide to let the person go. The next thing you know, the person is coming back to the job and it's just nasty. And this was all because they didn't deal with the problem when they had the opportunity to deal with it. They saw the little value that person was given, which is they did really well at the job they were doing, but they caused so much chaos and confusion along with it that some things are just not worth it, especially when your employees are possibly risking their lives, right? Because of this one individual that you never took the time to deal with, right? And so one thing about it is that, like I said, when it came to Cain and Abel and you had Cain's heart, Cain wanted to just take his all of his trauma he'd experienced, that narcissistic injury, and just blow everything through Abel, right? To him, that was the only feasible solution. But see, this is the thing about it. His issue was not, even though it's obvious this wasn't a crime of passion, like a woman walking in with her husband with another lady and vice versa, this wasn't a crime of passion. It's obvious this toxic jealousy and envy had been building up in Cain for so long, right? And he had been using Abel as the scapegoat. And so this was no different, right? His issue was with God. His disillusionment, disappointment, uh, despair, depression, right? And all of the above, all of that and discontentment, it all had to do with God. He was angry at God, right? And when we have scarcity mindset, what we'll do is take that scarcity mindset and we're zero in on other individuals who have the kind of life that we want to live. And those other individuals, nine times out of 10, have not done a thing to us, right? They've walked through whatever individualized journey that God has given them for their life. They've gone through the pain of that journey, right? And their paycheck is being exalted, basically, right by God. God promotes, right? One person, as the scripture said, one person is planting the seeds, which is the word. Then you have another person who's watering that seed, right? So that's when other people are mentioning your names and rooms that your feet have yet to enter, right? And then you got the third part of God giving the increase. And God is what? Promoting you and that type of thing. Other people have nothing to do with that. He can use people, right, as doors that let you into, give you access to certain places. However, it's God who is moving all of the pieces on the chessboard. But when we decide that we're going to uh, blame our lives, right, the end result of our lives on somebody else, and it's their fault, we can fall victim to the spirit of narcissism that's in a, a toxic culture whether that's in a church or in a Bible study small group, whether it's at a job or with a certain ministry in a romantic relationship, we fall prey to that when we make scarcity mindset an idol, right? That somebody else has to lose in order for us 
to be able to win, right? And then the scripture tells us where there's envy and strife, there's confusion and every evil work. Every evil work is literally lurking around the corner when we start in that scarcity mindset, which is only going to do what? It's only going to lead to bitterness and resentment. That's all the scarcity mindset leads to. And then you know what? Nehemiah set the perfect example for us, right? When that messenger came over and told him about the men wanting to meet him and oh no, <laughs> his response was, oh no, I'm joking. His response was not, oh no, but it might as well have been, oh no, because what he said is, I'm doing a good work and I cannot come down. He realized that what they wanted to do was give, what they were doing was coming up with these toxic distractions. But the scripture also says that he realized that what they wanted to do was to harm him. And so that's what happens when a person's countenance change and they say, well, let's meet up. Let's go here. Now you can go on there by yourself. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's best to take two or three people with you that you know you can trust whenever someone who is a narcissist and or has other uh, you know, spirits of toxicity running through them and they're telling you about meeting them somewhere to talk something out. That's not the time to go along, especially when you have noticed a shift in their behavior. But Nehemiah, he wasn't having it. He said, I'm doing a good work. I can't come down. So they tried that four times. Then the fifth time they sent a letter to, to intimidate him, right? And the letter was filled with gaslight. Then they sent a false prophet. I mean, they just kept on and on and on about seven times, seven attempts to pull him down from that wall and to stop the work of God and to try to kill him. And one of those times it was like, uh, the false prophet telling him, let's go run into the house of the Lord because they're going to come and try to harm you. And he said, oh, why would a person like me go and do something like that? He knew it was only supposed to, so, so many people that's supposed to go into the house of God. The priests, the Levite priests were allowed and, and then they could only go into certain rooms. So he knew better than to do that as well. Sometimes people will come to you when they have those toxic traits. And sometimes it blocks off your thinking. You don't have time to even think. And sometimes you have to even tell them, just give me a few minutes to think about whatever you're saying. And it's like, when you start thinking and really rationalizing this stuff out, you start thinking like, like Nehemiah, why in the world would I go into the house of God knowing that nobody's supposed to go in there? And then he realized they wanted him to do that. So that later what, all they would be doing is taunting him and talking about him. So some people will suggest certain things for you to do so they can try to hurt you either emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, relationally, financially, intellectually, socially, on and on and on. So they can, all those areas, they can attack you. And then as well, so they can go and tell their friends, you see what she did. She was so stupid enough to believe me. And she met me over there and see how I tricked her. You see what I'm saying? So they'll get you to that place. Then they'll attack you. They'll ambush you. And it's usually... They usually don't do it by themselves. They're usually more effective if they work in like a tribal situation where it's basically like a cult, some type of like mob activity. You know what I'm saying? It'll be kind of like a gang type of initiation type of thing. By the time it's all said and done, you have to be really careful when the countenance have changed. And even if it's one person that's in a Bible study group, one person uh, that's in any group that you're in, because nine times out of 10, that one person is the ringleader. And everybody else has fallen in line as the flying monkeys. And if they're not considered flying monkeys, they're too afraid to speak up. So they're going to go along with what the rest of the group are doing anyway. And so that spirit of gaslighting is going to end up going on to that particular individual. You see what I'm saying? And so what else happened is that Cain had a mother wound, right? Remember, he inherited, we all inherited trauma from Eve, right? 
And so think about it. He inherited trauma from Eve, right? And so also remember, we all go through what's called a 5L cycle in relationships. That's love, lies, limiting beliefs, learn stress response, right? And then we have a what? Limited worldview is number five. And so when it comes to the first part of uh, the first L, that's love. That means everybody has a concept of love. And that concept of love is based upon the way we're wired plus our personality style plus it's our love attachment style. And it's four love attachment styles. And that's anxious, right? Okay, well, sometimes we can attach securely to our parents and sometimes we didn't. And then, of course, secure attachment, that's self-explanatory. Then you got avoiding attachment where we're either avoiding people or giving them something differently than they want and or need. And then you got fearful avoiding where that's like a push or pull attachment. It's like, I need you, but I don't trust you type of attachment, right? And so based upon either our uh, parents' deficiencies or their perceived deficiencies, like when um, Satan tricked Eve into thinking she had deficiencies, right? So her perceived deficiencies led her to thinking that her manufacturer, who was God, did not give her and um, Adam enough, right? That he didn't create them with everything else like everybody else, right? That she was missing something, so to speak. So all he had to do was get that perceived deficiency in, your, in her mind. And with those words, he set up a seed of rejection in her. We all inherited that, right? And so that seed of rejection and her concept of love got twisted by the lie that that Satan put in her head that love was restrictive, right? That lie in turn turned to the, what, the third L for the five L cycle, which is a limiting belief, I'm not enough. That limiting belief of I'm not enough led to her having an internal struggle. That internal struggle led to the fourth L, which is what? A learned stress response. And the stress response is what? You're either fighting, you're flighting, you're freezing or fawning. And fawning means you're trying to please, appease an abuser, right? You're trying to keep them happy. You're doing one of those four, right? And so then the learned stress responses you have, it changes over and you have a limited worldview is what ended up happening. And so when it came to uh, Cain, he inherited his mom's seed of rejection. And so all, of, all he had to take was God rejecting his sacrifice because what? Cain didn't want to be put under the authority of God. God rejected his sacrifice and turned that change into that turned over into a narcissistic injury and turned that narcissistic injury turned over to what? Narcissistic rage. So you got a narcissistic rage and you got injury going on. What was he going to do with all of that? Could he do something to God and hurt God? No. So he decided, okay, here you go, Abel, once again. And he Abel became that what? Punching bag slash um, storage container slash poison container, right? That he used for his trauma, the dumping ground, right? And so that's what Abel was. He just took all of that and just dumped it right on him. Come on, let's go out to the field. He just that quick. When his countenance changed and he had been rejected, suffering from that injury, the rage building up into him. And so his only feasible solution, get rid of Abel, he's the problem. Not let me deal with God with it and have it out with him. Get rid of it through Abel. And that's a lot of times what happens with people who are narcissistic. They don't stop and think, I've got an issue with God. And then us in general, two people in general, we don't think like, this is an issue I have with God. God is the one that owns everything, everything in the world, including our bodies, right? Every single thing belongs to God and is on loan to us. 
And instead of us thinking that right in front in terms of Psalm 24, one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. When we don't look at it at that lens, we always are thinking that it's somebody else's fault why we don't have what it is that we want to have. Instead of looking at it as like, well, maybe I can go to God and ask him to bless me with this. And then God might say, he's going to even say, yes, no, right? Wait, right? My grace is sufficient. It could be one of the four things, like he told Paul, right? Because there's some thorns in the flesh we're not going to get rid of on this side of heaven. And some of them is just to make us stronger going through our wilderness season so we can get to our destiny. Like I said, each and every one of us have an individualized journey. And when we start thinking it's a one-size-fit-all, like we putting on a dress that's a one-size-fit-all, or we putting on a pair of stretch pants that's a one-size-fit-all for our calling, when we start thinking of it in terms of that and uh, for everything that comes to us in life that God blesses other people with, it's going to be a problem because we're not all going to have the same exact thing. God is just not going to bless all of us like that. He's going to bless us all and grace us all according to the Holy Spirit, giving us gifts, right? We're going to all be graced with different things, but it won't be the same thing and it won't be in the same way. You see what I'm saying? Because when we start thinking it's going to be God's going to show up in the exact same way each and every time, that's when we walk around carrying a Holy Spirit box and we put it on the shelf, right? Put it on the shelf and when we need to pull it off the shelf and carry it around because we're saying this is the only way that God's going to show up. That's not the kind of God we have. We have a God of creativity, right? All powerful God. And what does it say in Hosea 4, 6? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God I will also forget thy children. So it's like, okay, so you get the knowledge, but you're going to reject it. Cain had the knowledge. He knew what he was supposed to do as far as sacrifice. He decided he won't do what he wanted to do. And in turn, what? It wasn't accepted. He was rejected. So it wasn't like he didn't know, like, why, why is it not rejected? He didn't even stop to think about it. You see what I'm saying? He did what he wanted to do. And because he didn't come up under God's authority, which a lot of times, Narcissists definitely, not a lot of times, that's part of the problem of a person who has the spirit of narcissism. They feel that they are their own God, that they are God. And we know that that's not what that is, right? They want to be worshiped. They want to have everything done to them that God has. And we cannot put a person who's a narcissistic individual in God's position and expect that our life will flourish. God is not going to have it that way. He's a jealous God, right? When it comes to sharing, his authority and position in our lives, he's not going to do it. He's not going to fight us about it. It's in his word as far as how we are supposed to operate on that ram, right? And so by him doing what he wanted to do, he got what he wanted to get, so to speak, right? And so his punishment was that God told him he was going to be a restless wanderer. Now think about it. If you restless, you can't sleep and you have a restless night. You're just turning back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You're just turning all over the place. It's just a hot mess. There's no peace. And so the next word was what? It's, he called him a restless wanderer. When you're wandering, you're just all over the place. And then when you rest, then you're tossing and turning and tossing and turning. So imagine it's a restless wanderer. You can't get any rest. You're all over the place and you're wandering. That's what narcissistic people do, right? Causing chaos, confusion, discord, division judging, criticizing, condemning, on and on and on, just causing mess wherever they go, right? 
one minute, praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. And they shouting and screaming and prophesying and running around the church, right? Next minute, they cursing somebody else out. Next minute, they turn around, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus, hallelujah, oh, thank you, glory to God. Next minute, they turn around and cussing each other out. It's constant Jekyll and Hyde. That's a restless wanderer, right? And so you think about it. the other thing that they do, they cause such discord and uh, disunity, right, and division among, uh, it could be families, it can be job, the workplaces, it can be churches and ministries, you know, and, I mean, it, it could just run amok wherever you go in any organization. They'll call Sandra up. Sandra, I can't believe what Mary did. Let me tell you what Mary said about you. So they'll tell Sandra what Mary said, right? And then Mary will get, they'll tell Sandra what Mary said. Sandra will get so mad, she'll say some nasty things about Mary. Then they'll call Mary and tell Mary, she'll call Mary and tell Mary what Sandra said. But of course, she won't tell what she added on to it, right? And then while she's at it, well, let me tell you what Sharice, girl, let me tell you what happened with Sharice as well. So then she'll talk about three or four other co-workers, other uh, church members, other small group members, other family members. And in turn, they call and, and call up other people and it's just messy. That's what a restless wanderer is. You all over the place. Like I said, chaos, confusion, envy, strife, contention. And the scripture says where there's envy and strife, there's confusion and every evil work. And so if you want to don't want to be in a restless wandering situation, we have to be careful of coming to God in a place of humility, understanding that all of the stuff that we have, okay, is on loan from him anyway. We're on loan, right? These platforms are on loan to us and we have to steward them well, right? And so what happens is that because of all of this discord and chaos and confusion they're causing, before you know it, there's division going around. I mean, just cutting in every kind of every kind of area. And then when you confront the person, they, of course, they're going to act like they don't even know what's going on. They don't know why all of this stuff is transpiring. And the best thing to do is not to even confront a narcissist, to have an intelligent conversation with them, to set boundaries. But what happens when you go to them in an argumentative way, in any kind of nasty way, any way that's dealing with emotions, they are using those emotions that you're coming to them and presenting and manifesting, right, to fuel them for supply. And that's the last thing that you want, part two, right? So our gut reaction when someone's countenance, and then when you think of countenance, you might be thinking to yourself, well, what is that? When a combination of their attitude, disposition, their energy, facial expressions, interactions, tolerance, and behavior, all of that, right? That's what countenance is. It's a combination of all of that. So when that changes towards us, our gut reaction is to go ahead and give the person more access to us, right? Something triggers in our brains where it's like, oh, well, maybe they don't like me anymore. They don't approve of me. So I need to give them more access to me. So we'll give them more access. We'll give them more material things, right? And or we'll wait around to kind of check and see if things are going to get better, right? But his or her countenance has changed. <laughs> I just want you to think about that, right? And so when you're waiting around to see what's going to end up happening, you are waiting around basically for a setup, right? You're going to be entrapped 
in a vicious cycle of soul tie and trauma bond reinforcement, right? And you know, that's going to end up happening with the narcissist. And I'm quite sure that some of you uh, ladies out here, and if it's any men that's on the channel, some of you guys have probably already experienced that, right? And so what we're going to do, we're going to discuss the relationship between David and Saul. And I know we want to get right to the part where we're talking about the countenance changing. However, it's kind of like when you go to uh, a medical doctor or a therapist, you want that back. They want the background history. They want us to fill out that 15 packet of forms. Right. And so what I want to do, I want to give you some history on Saul so you can better understand the transition for when his countenance changed, if that makes sense. OK. So what happened is that uh, Saul was anointed as king over Israel. And the Israelites, their first king was God, right? So you're thinking, well, why did they need a king? The Israelites wanted to be like everybody else. It's kind of like your kids coming to you and you've already bought them a winter coat and winter boots, jogging pants or whatever. And they're coming to you telling you that they want something else. And it's not that they don't like what you got them, but everybody else, right? All the other girls in dance have these kind of <laughs> jogging pants on with writing on the bottom, right? All the other... Uh, the guys, they're wearing these type of gym shoes. So it's like that. Is The Israelites got caught up in what everybody else was doing, right? And so uh, Samuel tried to discourage them. God talked to Samuel and so that he could try to discourage them, letting them know, okay, so this is what's going to happen. Once you take on this person as king, the king is able to do this, this, and this, and that. And this is the kind of control that he's going to have over you. Do you still want it? They still wanted it, right? And that's what happens. Sometimes we want what we want until we get it. And then we figure out, I really don't want that. What I what I thought I wanted, I don't want. A lot of times it's too late, right? And so what happens is that, you know how I always have this figure of speech. If you've been listening to this channel long enough, you know I always say that a lust for leads to a took for. And the took for means it's something that's not been God ordained, right? And then that took for leads to a soul tie door. But then I have a second uh, figure of speech, and that is a lust for leads to an axed for. And then an axed for leads to a no more. And so what that means is you had unchecked cravings and longing inside of your soul, right? There was no management involved with that, right? So it changed over to lust, right? And that lust in your soul changed over to you asking God, continuously for something that you thought that was going to fulfill you, right? Instead of allowing God to fulfill you through partnering up with the Holy Spirit, you thought that something else was going to fulfill you. And so what happened is he went on and gave it to you. You see what I'm saying? Because you kept asking, asking, asking. So there are some situations where God will allow us to have what it is we've asked him for. And then before you know it, we're just like, oh, that's okay. I really want to, no, 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 no more, no more. I don't want any more of that. You see what I'm saying? Kind of like with the Israelites, when Moses brought them out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and they got sick of God's provision, which was manna. They got sick of that and they wanted meat. So the Lord's like, okay, so you want it. You're lusting. You know, you've got leanness in your soul because of this meat. Guess what? I'm going to give it to you and you're going to have so much of it. It's going to be coming out of your nose. You're going to fall dead from me. So sometimes that's how we get. We want something so bad that lust in our soul is so strong. It brings leanness into our souls. And then what happens is that we're like, no more. We don't want any more, right? So that's pretty much, I guess I would say, what happened in the situation with Saul being king over the Israelites. 
And so instead of the people going like, no more, we don't want any more of him. That's how God was. He had enough, right? And so there's sometimes when God, we don't even have to get to the point of saying we don't want any more of something. God is just like, no more. I've had enough of this. You're about to suffer the consequences of your actions. Like I've had enough. You know, you've crossed the threshold. I'm drawing a line right here in the sand. So sometimes God will do that as well. He's saying no more instead of him waiting on us to realize that uh, we've become consumed with something, right? And so what happened is that in the scripture, they mentioned Saul. They, when they describe him, it's very similar. Him and Absalom's description is very similar. Saul is described as being tall and handsome and above the rest, that type of thing, right? And you know with Absalom, right? He was also a narcissist. It's mentioned that um, there was no blemish from head to toe. So think about this. Somebody not having any blemishes on their body. If you are not careful and you don't keep that under check and under control, that means you can allow that to become something what, that you take pride in. Like, look at me. My body doesn't have any marks on it. And it might seem silly. Satan can work overtime in having us to take pride in anything, <laughs> especially when we're dealing with a seed of insecurity, right? And so that's exactly what happened with Saul. Saul had an insecurity problem. It was a seed of insecurity that was planted inside of him, right? And instead of him following God's authority and coming up under God and submitting, like with Cain on part one, right? Cain would not come up under God's authority. And Saul did the same thing, okay? And so what, what happened is that Saul partially obeyed God but he called it full obedience, so to speak. You know, his and his words and actions, you can tell he's like, well, I, I fully obeyed him, but now I want you to think about it. Either we're doing everything that God told us to check off the list, which is obedience, or we're doing part of the list or none of it, which is disobedience, right? If there's, you know, when you got the half truth, that means you mix some truth in there, right, with the lie. And that's basically what Saul was doing. You see what I'm saying? And it was just flat out rebellion. There's no way to dress it up. Either we're going to obey God, trust him, obey him, and do what it is he says that we should be doing, right? Or we're going to what rebel against him. And so what happened was uh, Saul was given word through Samuel, right? The Lord gave Samuel word, and in turn, Samuel was to give Saul word that all of the Amalekites were to be destroyed. All of the Amalekites, all of their children, the women, the children, their belongings, the cattle, the sheep, the oxen, like everything that belonged to the Amalekites were supposed to be destroyed. These were God's instructions. There was no like maybe in this situation, if this happened, then you don't have to do it. It was none of that. It was strict instructions. This is what, what uh, Saul was supposed to do, right? Okay, and then when you think about it, and you know I always mention this verse, and that's Hosea 4, 6, it says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priests for me. Because you've forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Now think about that. So he says, if you've forgotten, you call yourself forgetting the law, which you knew it, right? It's different if we don't know. We're destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's the part we like. The part we don't like is when the Lord says, okay, since you forgot, <laughs> you're going to so-called forget the law when you knew it, 
then I'm going to forget about you. You're going to be rejected. And guess what? Your children are going to be walking around ignorant and they're going to be rejected, which means what? We've got generational trauma, uh, generational strongholds, generational sin just passed on down, right? It's just like with that knowledge addiction. You learn and learn and learn about narcissism. You attend every summit, every seminar, every conference. You watch every video uh, on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. I mean, you've got like basically a PhD in it. But when we're learning and learning and we're not applying anything that we're learning, then the Lord is just like, okay, this is flat out rebellion. <laughs> then I reject you. At least we have an excuse if we've not learned anything, right? Because God meets us where we're at. But then when you just learning and learning and there's no life application, then that's where there's a disconnect. Something is going on. You see what I'm saying? If we're learning and learning, either we're not self-aware or we don't care. We want to do what we want to do, right? And that's when it becomes rebellion. So after the Lord had given Samuel those explicit instructions for Saul to like just get rid of everybody, destroy everybody and everything. This is actually what happened. And this is in 1 Samuel 15. And this is in the ninth verse. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. <laughs> now, I just want you to think about that. What I just said, it said they were not willing. <laughs> it didn't say they couldn't. It said they were not willing. And it's just like, it makes me think about, for instance, when you, like, for instance, we ask our children, go ahead and go in there and clean your room. It's a mess. The whole room is a disaster. So then you go in the room and you check and then it's just stuff all over the place. And then you say, well, why didn't you clean your room? I told you to clean the whole room, not the part you wanted to do. It still looks a mess in here. And then they say, well, I couldn't clean it. And then you're like, well, what do you mean that you couldn't clean it? And then they start to make up excuses about their siblings or what their friends did when they came in and all of that stuff. And they still, still you still keep saying, but your room is not clean. You didn't clean your room. Oh, no, I cleaned it. But but I couldn't clean that part. Once you've you know said it so many times and they've gotten sick of it, they're like, but I couldn't get that part. And it's not that they couldn't get that part. They didn't want to. And so when the scripture says that they were not willing, that means that they had that bent already towards rebellion. So it was like, not only was it Saul, but it was the troops along with him. It's like they basically became his flying monkeys. We're just not going to do it. And so we've decided the Lord has had grace and mercy and compassion on us, right? And he loves us, of course, his faithful love that endures forever. The scripture is always talking about that. So he has all of this for us. And we've got all of this knowledge he's given us access to. And then we just decide that we're going to sit on it and not do anything about it, but keep calling our girlfriends up and saying, what should I do? If you were me, would you stay with them? Would you do this? Would you do that? That's when it becomes flat out rebellion. It no longer becomes, I couldn't do it. It's like, I won't do it. You understand what I'm saying? And so this is exactly what was happening uh, with Saul is that he, uh, they just wouldn't do it. Him and his crew, they would not do it. So guess what ended up happening? <laughs> oh my word. Guess what ended up happening? 
God sent Samuel over to confront Saul. God had had it. He sent him over to uh, confront Saul. And so what happens is that uh, Saul ended up telling Samuel that he had obeyed the Lord. So he lied, right? And so as Samuel standing there, he said, well, what is that I'm hearing? Why do I sound like I'm hearing sheep? Because what happened is that they preserved the king. They didn't kill King Agag and they didn't kill the best of like the sheep and the cattle and the oxen. So as Samuel standing there, he's like, well, what is that I hear? If you killed them all, like, why am I hearing something? So then Saul dresses it up and he lies again. You see what I'm saying? So he starts to say, okay, Agag wasn't killed and and uh, the troops, they saved the, the choice, the best part. They saved the best part and they decided they were going to use that to sacrifice for God. So what he did, he shifted quickly over to, he went from lying to go ahead and blame shifting. And then Samuel entered the conversation with him a third time, right? And before he entered the conversation with him a third time, you can tell at that point, it's just like when you're talking to an individual that's narcissistic, it gets to the point where you can just be like, just stop. That's what you really want to say. Like, just stop, just stop. Because, you know, once the pathological lying starts and it's just like, you want to just go like, you're saying to yourself, I, I can't take any more of this. And this is how Samuel was when he was talking to, uh, he was talking to Saul. He said, stop. <laughs> so it says in verse 15 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, it says, Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Malachites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. And then that's when it says in verse 16, stop exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. So it's just like, please don't, don't go any further. And you think about it when you talk to a narcissistic person, you're just like, I can't take any more of this. It's what you start thinking. Like the lies just keep coming out. And a lot of times it's just unnecessary lies. And Samuel, I guess he figured out, I'm just not going to listen to any more of this. Like, I'm not going to let the spirit just keep going on, you know, with all of these lies. He just told him, stop. And then what was Saul's response? He said, tell me. And it says, Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fly, uh, fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? <laughs> why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Samuel answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek. See how he's changed a little bit now? And I completely destroyed the Amalekites. Now that was flat, flat out gaslighting. That was flat out gaslighting, not only the Lord, but gaslighting Samuel. Because Samuel was giving, <laughs> saw the message of the Lord. That's gaslighting. Then he says, the troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder. He's blame shifting again. The best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. 
for rebellion is like the sin of divination. And that's just another word. Divination is another word for uh, witchcraft. And he says, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And that brings us back to coinciding with Hosea 4, 6, where he says, if you're going to reject him, right? You're going to reject him and his word. You're going to reject knowledge. And he's going to reject you. This lines right up with that. And then in verse 24 of 1 Samuel 15, it says, Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. <laughs> so I want you to think about that, right? He says he wanted to uh, go back and worship the Lord as if nothing had ever happened. And he also admitted that he has sinned and transgressed. The thing that tripped me out, though, is that he still got to the point where he still wasn't taking ownership. He said he was afraid of the people, and that's why he didn't obey the Lord. The thing about it is that Saul was the king. He was in charge. What it was is he was like Cain. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. And narcissists do not like coming up under anyone's authority. And that seed of insecurity was there. When people have that seed of insecurity, and that's common in narcissistic individuals, there's a seed of insecurity. And that seed of insecurity, right, what makes them, what gives them a false sense of safety and security is being their own sense of authority. They won't come up under God. And if they're not going to come up under God, then surely they're not going to come up under man. You understand what I'm saying? When it comes to uh, the workplace and that type of thing. And like I said, they said, the scripture said that they were not willing. So when their will, when your will is involved in something and we're not willing to do something, that means that we're just flat out uh, rebelling. And then it also means that in the scripture, like when the Lord said that uh, when he mentions about saying he was going to destroy them, like in Hosea 4, 6, for rejecting knowledge, destroy them. And we're not destroying it's like once you've learned and learned and learned about narcissistic abuse and other things that's related to that and toxic relationships in general, and then you're not willing to do anything about it, when you got to the point where having almost like a bootleg PhD in it, right? You're not willing to destroy them, right? Like God told Saul to destroy them, all the Malachites. And in this sense, when you're destroying them, you are destroying the addictions, right? And those addictions are what? From the lack cycle, love, approval, comfort, and knowledge addictions. So when you are not destroying those addictions that's involved in that addiction cycle, right? The lack cycle, that means that you are enslaved to the narcissist, right? And he is functioning as your Pharaoh of Egypt, okay? And so the thing about it is that uh, Saul never really truly repented. He said he had sinned. He said he transgressed against the Lord, but then he went back right back online and blame shifting and saying that the people, he was afraid of obeying God because of the people when he was the king and he had the power. So it, it just didn't make sense. He still just kept on covering up. And it make you think about, even though Adam and Eve were not narcissistic, it makes you think about how God gave them plenty of opportunity to own up to their sin in the Garden of Eden and what they'd done, they just went on, kept passing the buck. And uh, Adam was like, well, God, the, the woman you gave me, and even Steve said, well, the serpent did it. And the serpent didn't have anybody to blame. We know that. But I'm just saying, they just kept passing the buck. Nobody owning up to anything. 
And so now we're going to get to the part where Saul's countenance changed toward David, okay? So first of all, Saul ends up hiring David after David defeated Goliath, right? Saul ends up hiring David as what I would call an emotional pacifier slash personal musician slash warrior, right? And so what happened was that Saul at that time, Saul was longing for something different in his son, Jonathan. And Jonathan didn't have it. David had a three and one. Like I said, David was providing Saul with a three and one. He was emotional pacifier. He was his personal musician and he was a warrior for Saul, right? And then with Jonathan, he was a warrior and had a good heart. Instead of Saul appreciating that, you can tell from what, like what's, if you read between the lines, Saul was longing for something different in Jonathan and he was hoping to get that supply. Like with the narcissist, they always want supply from someone. He was hoping to get that supply from David, right? And so then when it came to David, and so he doted on David, right? And so then when it came to David, his father didn't spend a lot of time with him. That was obvious because when Samuel came over to anoint David as king, because Saul ended up losing his kingship, once the Lord rejected him, he took away, stripped away the kingdom from him, had Samuel to go over and anoint David. But David had not been, he had not reached destiny yet. He was still working as a shepherd, right? But then he transitioned over to working for, uh, for working for Saul and still went back and forth to go help his father out. But he had transitioned from that, um, he had transitioned from that, from that being solely his position as shepherd, but he had not been anointed as king over Israel yet, right? And so David's father, when Saul went over, when uh, Samuel went over there to anoint them and to do the whole ceremony, and he's asking David's dad, you know, Jesse, like, is this all your sons? And he's like, oh, wait a minute, it's one out in the field. So he had completely forgotten about David. And so we have evidence from that, that David longed to have a father that spent time with him. And then he longed for a brother to have good relationships with him. When he went over to the line, to the army line with the Philistines. And his oldest brother, Eliab, say, well, who's taking care of them few sheep while you're over here? And then he started projecting his own evil heart onto David, right? And so you could tell because David longed to have that father who spent time with him. And then he longed to have a good uh, brother relationship, which he was able to find in Saul's son, Jonathan, who had a good heart. So that means that that connected David to Saul. Saul was connected to David because of the fact that he longed for a three-in-one package deal in Jonathan. He didn't get it, so he was able to get his supply needs met as an emotional regulator, right, and make his image look good. He was able to get all that from David, and David was able to have uh, Saul to kind of provide him with being a spiritual father and also for Jonathan like a spiritual brother because the scripture says that uh, Jonathan loved uh, David, like his, his, his self, like himself rather. So when you say that, and they ended up forming a healthy soul tie and you're thinking, okay, so if Jonathan was healthy, then how did things go wrong? Although Jonathan was healthy, we can't ignore the fact that Jonathan came from his father and his father was Saul. We can't ignore that. So David became soul tied to Saul, right? And this was because of two reasons. Number one is that Saul served as his spiritual father. Number two is because he had a soul tie with Jonathan, who also 
had Saul as his father. And the soul ties nothing but a what? It's a connection. It's just simply a connection, right? And so what happened is that you end up with these two individuals who had unchecked cravings. And these two individuals were Saul and David. They went unchecked, right? And when those unchecked cravings go for so long, it turns into like longing and longing and longing. And then you got what? It's transitioned over to lust. So they both entered a soul tie door with each other, right? And so what happens is that, like I said, David goes and works for Saul. And everything was going good until we get to the point where David had come back in from de defeating more of the Philistine armies. And the women, uh, they were singing and dancing as King Saul came out. And they started singing and dancing about how many men uh, David had killed, how many men Saul had killed, right? They mentioned about Saul, his thousands, and David, his ten thousands. And that's when everything went wrong. And I want to read to you specifically what it says in the scripture on that part. It says, let's see, we're in 1 Samuel 18. It says, David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines with shouts of joy and with three stringed instruments. As they danced, the women sang, David has, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. David was playing the liar as usual, but Saul was holding a spear and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. Therefore, Saul sent David away from him and made him commander over a thousand men. So just think about that. This song is what caused the transition with Saul. He already had the seed of insecurity. He was already narcissistic. His countenance changed simply from hearing these ladies sing that song. So what does that mean? Like when Cain suffered a narcissistic injury after God had rejected him, right? His, his sacrifice, right? This is the same thing that happened with Saul. After he heard the ladies singing that song, he suffered narcissistic injury. And that narcissistic injury turned into narcissistic rage. And the scripture says from, he eyed him with jealousy from that point forward. And then we transition to him trying to, the beginning of him trying to, uh, the beginning of several attempts to try to kill David. You understand what I'm saying? And so what happens is that as we talked about when we discussed narcissism and the narcissistic systems in the church and all of that, if you're on a pastoral team, right, with a narcissistic lead pastor at a church, right, 
you're getting more amens and praise the Lords and hallelujahs and thank you, Jesus, you can be sure that a narcissistic injury will probably occur, right? And then you might be moving and branching out from the church. If it's not in that situation, you're moving and branching out and you got other ministries going on other than what it is you're doing in the church. A narcissistic injury is going to occur because nine times out of 10, if you got other ministries going on and then you're out on social media, somebody from the church is watching your channel and mention something, happen to mention something to you at church and the lead pastor hears it, a narcissistic injury is going to occur. And when the injury occurs, the rage comes in and something has to be done. That rage cannot just sit there. You see what I'm saying? And that's because the anger all those years, that anger inside of the individuals with the spirit of narcissism has been unchecked. There has been no anger management. So when that rage comes in, they have to do something with it. And instead of running to the therapist's office, their way of dealing with it is using someone else, like Cain did with Abel, using someone else for the poison container, right? Slash punching bag, right? Slash blowing your trauma through container. They they figure somebody else has got to have it. And this other person is the reason why my life is like that. And that's how Saul was looking at David, like you are the problem. And if it wasn't for you, then I would be okay. Forget about his own actions. Forget about him not coming under the authority of God. Same thing with Cain, not coming up under God's authority and uh, offering the proper sacrifice. And it was the same thing with Saul. And then he decides he's going to go ahead and try to gaslight God. Proxy gaslighting through Samuel. It doesn't get any crazier than that, right? This is the God of the universe who knows every single thing, but you're going to try to gaslight God and say, I obeyed him. I followed his full instructions. And you've got to be crazy to tell a prophet of the Lord that, right? <laughs> who has had full-on instructions from the Lord before he even went and, <laughs> went and confronted Saul about his sin. But that's what happens. We fail to do what it is we're supposed to do. And then if it's a narcissistic individual, they fail to do what they're supposed to do. And they're not going to fess up to it for any reason. They're going to do like Saul did. They're going to come up from one lie to the next and start talking about their mama was sick, their grandmama was sick. You know, everybody's out to get me. They love talking about what everybody else is out to get them to do. And they, if they're going to hold the mirror up, they'll hold it up. But in the mirror, guess what? The person they're envious and jealous and got hatred towards, that's the person in the mirror that they're looking at. They will refuse to look at themselves. And if they look at themselves, it's probably going to be for a couple of minutes. There's a window and that window is going to close up. And that's because all of that self-hatred and anger, anger and that self-loathing is going to come out and they can't even tolerate. They can't even hold space for that. You see what I'm saying? They can't even regulate that. And so their regulation <laughs> is coming out of it and, and, and having a spirit of narcissism being enslaved back by it and having it to control them, so to speak. Right. And so even if it's your job and you have a narcissistic boss, once that boss finds out that that job is not your life, you are fulfilled by doing ministry. You, you, you got your calling in full string swing. You are walking in purpose and that you're not just dependent upon that job to make you happy. And that job is the only thing that he or she is doing. You best believe that there is going to be a problem. You're going to be literally, if it's not physical arrows or spears, 
there's going to be uh, spiritual ones that's going to be thrown at you that you're going to have to literally be praying Psalm 91 over for protection of your uh, mind and body and soul and spirit, literally from the uh, fiery darts of the wicked, so to speak, as scripture speaks about, right? And so what happens is that we can only control ourselves. We can't go out and try to control anyone else's behavior. We can't make any narcissistic individual go and get help. We can't send them to a therapist. We can't send them to a coach. We can pray for them and hope that they get better. We can't be the Holy Spirit for them. You see what I'm saying? We can only be responsible for our part, praying for them, hoping and wishing and praying that they would do their best to get help. But other than that, that's a situation between them and God. You see what I'm saying? And so um, what happened is that David, uh, Saul was so afraid of David because of the Lord's favor being on David. And that's the thing about it, because remember now, Saul was David's boss. So this wasn't an issue of David having more money than him. And so that's often the case with you, with other people, your co-workers and bosses in different situations. And even if it's at church and you have a position, when you've got that lead pastor who is your boss or whoever it is that's over you, that's your boss, that's narcissistic, they're the ones that's uh, providing you with the paycheck. So it's not like you're making more money than them. So it's not about the money. I just want to let you guys know that it's about people understanding that there's something different about you. And which is, we all know it's the favor of the Lord, right? The Lord has anointed you for a certain purpose. And that light from that favor and anointing is just shining out. You are beaming, you're radiating, right? You are radiating uh, the glory of God, so to speak, on your face, right? You are radiating that. And so when you're radiating Jesus, right? Wherever you go, people are going to have a problem with that. They're going to wonder how in the world is she or he going through all of this and they're still able to walk around with a smile on their face. Not saying you're smiling 24 seven, but you're still able to walk on and carry on and go through your trials and trauma and tribulation. And you're still able to keep yourself up and going. They're going to wonder how you're able to do that. Right. And it's also going to make them envious and jealous of you. And the jealousy is what starts first. Jealousy becomes toxic. Then it changes over to envy, right? And then it changes over to hatred. And then it changes over to malice. And they're ready to kill you. And so that's what ended up happening with uh, David. It wasn't that Saul uh, was concerned about him making more money than him. That wasn't it. Saul was his employer, remember? David was the emotional pacifier, his musician, his personal musician, and he was a warrior. And it got so bad that Saul thought, okay, let me just get David out of my eyesight because he became so afraid of him because God being with him and he knew how he felt about David. So let me just put him out of my eyesight. That'll help. But these feelings, those unchecked, that unchecked rage, the, the rage, the anger that was never managed, it still had to have somewhere to go. So it was like it was in between uh, Saul wanting to kill David and trying to kill him and then him being like, okay, we reconcile, we good. Like him going psych. You see what I'm saying? It's like that kind of you having friends, you're in a small group, right? With some other uh, Bible study members. And most of the members are flying monkeys to the ringleader of the group. And then it seemed like they are opening up their arms to you. And then they're pulling back. And then they're opening up their arms. And then, you know, you get the next thing. You write the next book, right? You release the next podcast episode. 
you're on the guest of the next TV show, right? You're working on the next movie or book or creating the next course. And then they're back again. They're throwing, throwing either uh, physical uh, or and or spiritual darts at you or spears or whatever, right? So it's like every time you see what I'm saying, you're going to the next level and doing the next thing, it just keeps coming back up because it's been unmanaged. They're not managing their emotions. They're using other people as emotional regulators. So what ends up happening is that you have got uh, Saul not only trauma bonded, I mean, uh, soul tied to David, and not only David soul tied to Saul, but you've got both of them trauma bonded to each other. And then you might be thinking, well, how in the world would they have ended up trauma bonded? Remember now, when you get trauma bonded, it happens because you keep going from the penthouse to the basement, the basement to the penthouse. It's the highs and lows, right? That's one of the ways you get trauma bonded. And you can also get trauma bonded from two people having uh, PTSD and or tra traumatic situations, going through it together and sharing that trauma, like that sharing tra traumatic stories. They got trauma bonded, right? Because of the fact, first of all, with David, he's looking at Saul as the father he never had, right? And then he's looking at Jonathan as the brother he never had, okay? But then this man that's the father he never had is trying to kill him. That's trauma. And then he's acting like he's reconciling. Then like, okay, I'm reconciling. We're restoring the relationship. Nah, psych, I take it back. As soon as David has another victory, right? He's back on the run for his life. And then when it comes to the other way around with Saul, this is the son that's giving me supply. He's making me look good for my image. God is blessing him going out and coming in. My troops are proud of him. But I can't stand him. I hate him. I want to kill him. So that's a conflict, right? He's his, uh, David was, I guess I would say, operating as Saul supply, a Saul supply, right? But then at the same time, Saul hated him. So that's ambivalence, right? That it's like this push and pull. And so what happened is you would think then, why didn't David just get himself out of that relationship? Why keep going in that mess, right? David had, his love attachment style was avoidance. And when you have an avoidance attachment style, either you get out of the way, right? You avoid a person and or you give a person something that they don't need or want. You give them something differently, whatever you want them to have. You don't give them what it is that they want, okay? But when it came to uh, dealing with Saul, because our love attachment styles can change according to the relationships that we have with certain individuals, right? And so when it came to Saul, David's love attachment style with him was fearful avoidant. And a person that has fearful avoiding attachment style, that means that they need you, but they don't trust you. So then you got David with this push and pull with Saul. I need him as a father figure. I need Jonathan as this brother figure, but he's trying to kill me. And then on the other side, you got Saul. I need him as my supply slash emotional regulator, but I can't stand him. I hate him and I want him dead. That's a mess, right? So they both were soul tied and trauma bonded to each other. And because of that, and because of David's love attachment style, it was hard for him to pull himself out of there. Because like I said, the scripture mentioned now that from that day forward, after those ladies sang that song, Saul's countenance changed. And then he tried to kill David twice. David escaped the spear twice. 
So how many times does it take for you? I'm asking you a question. If you think about it with yourself, how many times does it take for somebody to throw a physical or a spiritual spear at you before you come out of the relationship? You see what I'm saying? See, we can empathize with David because we know when it comes to the trauma bonds and we know with the soul ties, both of them are numbered addictions. So that means that you are, hold on just one second. Sinus is acting up. You are addicted to the up and down cycles, the highs and the lows of the cycles with that individual that you're in relationship with. So David was addicted to being with Saul because of being going from the basement to the penthouse, the penthouse to the basement over and over again. And those cycles were created because Saul would try to kill him and then he would reconcile with him like, okay, psych, I was just playing. Come on back to the house. And this just kept happening. So think about it. you go on those highs and lows like that. Your body is becoming addicted to that. Your brain starts releasing chemicals. Your body starts releasing chemicals. That's like an addiction as if you're taking some physical drugs. And that's why it was so hard for David to get away. And that's where accountability partners come in. See, because what happens is you're in relationships with narcissistic partners. And then so it, what ended up happening is they have devalued every person, place, thing, and or idea that you value. Next thing you know, you've isolated yourself from your whole support group. So if you've if they've gotten you to a place like that, you become fused to them with that emotional and that toxic emotional and spiritual energy. And then you're looking to them. You've made them your God, right? And then in making them your God, you are missing out on being able to have the support system you need, which if you're listening to this and you're still in it, trying to gather to, to reconnect with some of those individuals that you know love and support and care about you and that bring value to your life, that's important because they're going to be important in order to be able to help you to talk you down when those addiction cycles start in, right? They start up and you're having a hard time leaving and staying gone or leaving period, right? And so when it comes to, if this is going on at a church with the narcissistic lead pastor, you know, you can just up and leave. You don't have to just stay in uh, those cycles like that and being continually abused, especially with the churches, they'll end up using scripture to abuse you, taking the word of God and twisting it and turning it into what they want it to be. And you know, Satan himself, he's the number one, the first narcissist. And that's what he did with Adam and Eve. He also took the scriptures and manipulated them and tried to use them when Jesus was in the wilderness. So it's always going to be at a time, and Jesus had just come up off a fast. It's always going to be at a time where you've had a, a high point, and then you have to go into the wilderness that Satan is right there. He's ready, willing, and able to pounce, right? And the scripture mentions that we have the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. And so we've got to be careful in those areas. And so, like I said, that's how uh, David and Saul's relationship ended up going back and forth and David going back and then leaving and going back and then leaving. And finally, it was like, Jonathan had to let the, let uh, David know, my dad is after you. You're going to have to go and like basically like stay gone. And they had to hug and everything and say their goodbyes and whatnot. You see what I'm saying? But had David gotten what he needed from his own father 
and had actually managed that longing that turned into lust, before it turned into lust, he would have been able to see clearly, this is not a good employment situation that I have. And there are two other things I want to mention real quick. And that is, in the midst of all this going on and Saul trying to kill David, one of those moments, Saul uh, figured, okay, I'm going to give David my daughter. This will make the Philistines come after David. This is one way to entrap him. So he said, I'm going to give her, give him Merab. But instead of giving David Merab, he went on and gave Merab to some other guy, right? He didn't even honor his word. And it made me think about Laban, Rebecca's brother. He did those bad business deals where, okay, you can have my sister. Okay, I agree for you to have my daughter. Then the next morning, psych, you can't have her. And that's the thing that um, it was similar with the way that Saul did that transaction because he promised David his daughter, but then he didn't deliver on the business deal. Then he promised David daughter number two, Michael. And then uh, he was happy about that because he was like, okay, for sure, the, the Philistines are going to get him. I can entrap him because... He loves my daughter. This is where Saul went wrong. He didn't know that his daughter, Michael, really loved David. He was hoping it was just going to be the other way around. This was a way to entrap David. But by Michael really loving David, just like Jonathan, his son, that presented a problem for Saul. And Saul was willing to kill his own son, Jonathan. He was willing to kill his own daughter, Michael, the both of them in order to get rid of David. And so what will happen is if you find yourself, whether it's in a church, at a job, right? In a romantic relationship, ministry, business partnership, whatever organization you're in, okay? Whatever kind of relationship, what people will do, they will make sure, they will be willing, ready and able to get rid of those people who they know love and appreciate you, right? And who are filled with the truth in order to infect a place with evilness. Anybody that's attached to you and that love and care about you, they will try to get rid of them. And that way it's like you're on your own to fend for yourself and it's easier to tackle you. But he was hoping with the second daughter that he finally did give to David, he was hoping that that would entrap David and that the Philistines would take over David, forgetting now the reason why, duh, the reason why I'm afraid of David in the first place is because the Lord is with him. And so what he did, he said, okay, give me 104 skins from the Philistines and you can have my daughter. So he was thinking for sure David's going to be killed. Okay. Like I said, he already knew the Lord was with him, but he was thinking there's no way he's going to make it back. Not only did David deliver 104 skins, it was a double portion that the Lord gave him. He killed 200 Philistines and came back with the foreskins. It's like, okay, here you go, right? And it was a couple of times that he mentioned during all of this that he was just, you know, he was from a poor family and this type of thing. Because what happened, I was like, well, why didn't David just leave? When he saw that Saul did not honor his request with the first daughter, why didn't he just leave and end that relationship? And then it made me look, and I read again in scripture, he had low self-worth. He did not see himself as being worthy. A couple of times he mentioned about his family coming from this little common place that we're just commoners. So it's like, okay, in other words, the unspoken message was, I deserve this. I deserve to be treated like this. Even I deserve to have someone to do bad dis business deals with me, so to speak, 
that's what he might as well have been saying. You see what I'm saying? And so when we get in the point where our self-worth is low and you end up being trauma bonded and soul tied to people who are narcissistic. And then we are also, also uh, David was soul tied to Saul, right? Because of that familial tie, right? But then he was also soul tied because of that financial tie. This man is paying me money. You see what I'm saying? And whenever we are financially connected to somebody, underneath there is also an emotional connection. Think about it. If you don't get paid, you're you ready to just snap off. If you don't get paid when you're supposed to get paid and you got somebody else as a boss and you are not an entrepreneur, you're going to be feeling some kind of way, right? Your paycheck, your emotions is tied to your paycheck. So that's another reason why he was so tired, right? And so then, of course, with all of that going on and having that unworthiness as a bottom layer than him feeling, you know what, I'm just, I'm not even worthy of better treatment than this. And I want to leave you on that note is you don't have to wait around to see what's going to happen. When somebody's countenance has changed, it's a combination of them uh, being condescending toward you, being disgusted and contempt, con, uh, contemptuous against you, right? Being disgusted by you, contemptuous against you, right? They're condescending towards you. Their face has changed. Their interaction and behavior and attitude, everything about you and being involved with them has changed. So when you wait around to see what's going to happen, or you call yourself, like we talked about with Cain and Abel, going out to the field, which represents the plain of Ono with Nehemiah, you're going to be in for a treat. It's, it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. That change in countenance is only the beginning part of what's further down the road, which is either physical, emotional, mental, and or spiritual. It could be possibly financial damage. You see what I'm saying? Because you know they're not going to stop at anything. It's going to probably be an ambush with a group. And then there's going to be, and when you ambush, you attack this company, you're not prepared for it. And so you don't want to get to the point that that's where you're at. You see what I'm saying? Like where David was at, right? Once their countenance has changed. And so when you look at the relationship between Jacob and Laban, we can't look at their relationship, I would say, so to speak, without looking at each one of them as individuals, if that makes sense. Okay. So first of all, we want to look at Jacob. Jacob's name means what? Trickster. Okay. And so what Jacob did is that he ended up swindling his brother Esau out of his uh, birthright, first of all, right? And then secondly, he swindled him out of his blessing. And then when it came to swindling him out of his birthright, since that occurred first, what happened is that Esau came in, he had been out in the field hunting, you see what I'm saying? And was tired. And you know how it is when they say never go into the grocery store or anywhere when you're hangry, right? So he'd been out on the field tired. He was hangry and he just wanted something to eat. And a lot of times when we just want something to fill that void because we are hungry, right? And it could be emotionally, spiritually, mentally, uh, physically, <laughs> sexually, it can go on and on and on. When there's hunger in our soul for, from some type of lust, right, that's been implanted, right? When we are hungry, we make very poor decisions, right? Our judgment is off because the only thing we're thinking about is what? Fulfilling the lust of the soul. 
And so in a moment of weakness for Esau being hungry, he made the decision when Jacob said, okay, you know, uh, you can have some of this stew as long as you sell me your birthright. And Esau wasn't even thinking. A lot of times we don't even think, you know, when somebody make like a crazy uh, type of proposition, so to speak, to us. And then it's just like, you know, he's like, well, <laughs> what good is a birthright going to do to me? I'm hungry. I need to eat. I'm famished. I'm going to die. And a lot of times when we are hungry, you think about physical hunger. When those uh, hunger pains have hit for so long, then after a while, you're just like, man, I feel messed up. Like, I feel like I'm going to pass out, like I'm going to faint. And then especially if you've been doing some type of strenuous activity like hunting, you're really going to feel kind of out of it and not so good, right? And so that's what happened with Esau. Jacob caught him at a weak moment. And a lot of times we will literally sell our souls in a moment of being hangry, so to speak, right? So he ends up tricking him out of the birthright over a bowl of stew. Then he ends up uh, stealing his blessing. Esau had gone out hunting again. And he'd gone out to get the meat so he can make his father some stew. Meanwhile, his mother, Rebecca, decides to like, let's play a game of dress up <laughs> with Jacob. And like, you go ahead and dress up as if you're Esau. I'm going to give you some of his clothes, put them on. You put them around your neck, your arms and all of that. Because Jacob was worried about like, well, what if like dad doesn't know? <laughs> what what if he knows it's not uh, Esau? What am I going to do at this point? And Rebecca's basically like, you know, don't worry about it. Go get two goats and I'll take care of the stew. And that way you will have presented it to your father, Isaac, before Esau even gets back. So she had this whole thing planned out. And Jacob, this grown man who could have been possibly 40 years old and older, at least at that point, he goes along with it to show you how much of a stronghold she had in his life and a soul tie as well. Anytime you uh, get that caught up and involved with your mother to plot against your father. And as an adult, you don't see anything wrong with it. You see what I'm saying? And it's not even like um, it's not even like the scriptures mentioned about Isaac being like some type of evil man, even so. But I'm saying you're plotting with your mother to steal your brother's blessing after he'd already stole the birthright. So it didn't get any more crazier than that, so to speak. Right. And so what happens is. Esau comes back. Jacob had already received the blessing. And so that asked Esau out from that blessing. Not that he wasn't going to still be blessed, right? Because remember uh, the blessing that was given in the covenant that was made with Abraham by God. He told him about how his descendants were going to be as, as many as the stars, you know, the number of stars in the sky, which no one could count, right? Only God knows the number of stars that he created. But he was basically giving... Uh, Abraham and ideas like with the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky, that that's how many descendants he was going to have. So Esau was going to be blessed regardless. However, Jacob was going to get the main blessing. You see what I'm saying? From the father. And this was part of the um, ritualistic things that the fathers did back then, so to speak, right? The covenant between the father and the oldest son. But like I said, Jacob took over that, <laughs> that right, right away. Right. And so what happens is because of all of this drama, Rebecca figured that the only way your life can be saved, Jacob, is by you like just totally leaving from here. You've got to get out of here because your brother's going to kill you. Okay. And so that's what ends up happening is that Jacob ends up leaving and then he goes back over to his parents' homeland, right? 
and he ends up meeting up with Laban, okay? And so what happens is that Jacob also ended up meeting his match. And you probably said, what's that? You know, we can have some type of brokenness. And then all we got to do is have uh, where we team up with someone else who has the same type of brokenness except on another level. So does it mean that that other person ended up, um, how would I say, not just that they influenced us, but does it mean that they made us do something that we didn't want to do? Not necessarily. However, remember, when you got the same type of brokenness or you got the same type of seeds that were sown in you and, and or the same type of spirits, you're prone to go in at a deeper level and or you will be considered like a lower, you're on lower on the spectrum, right? And you got that other person where they're way over here. It's like you thought you were deceitful, a deceitful rather. Then you hook up with somebody else. They at the point of like getting ready to plot out murder. So it's important to uh, really focus on the people that we get hooked up with, so to speak, in life. And this could be ministry, business partners. This could be romantic partners. Uh, this could also be other sisters and brothers in Christ in the congregation. And this can even be family members. And that's why a lot of times what happens is that we're so used to looking out for, uh, like I said, the business, romantic, uh, workplace drama, church drama, et cetera, we forget that <laughs> family members are also people too, right? And they also have issues. And that sometimes we have to set up boundaries in that respect, even if you look back at the situation between uh, Abraham and Lot, right? Abraham had to get to the point of separating himself from Lot. It's like, you got to go this, whatever way you pick direction, I'm going to pick the opposite direction, right? It got to the point that it got so toxic. And God had just stopped speaking to Abraham until uh, him and Lot separated. It's like, okay, now I can finish telling you about what your destiny is going to, <laughs> to be. You see what I'm saying? And so sometimes we get hooked up with the wrong person and all of a sudden we're like, oh, I can't hear from God. I can't hear from God. And then God is thinking towards us. It's like, yeah, you're not going to hear from me <laughs> until you release these individuals from your life. You see what I'm saying? Then you're going to start hearing from me again. So a lot of times when we're not hearing from God in regards to our destiny, right? In regards to our calling and what our purpose is. A lot of times it's because he's like, I can't do anything with you now because this is already your brokenness. And now you'd have hooked up with somebody whose brokenness is 10, 20, 50 times worse than what you got going on. So like when you get through that, let me know, so to speak. Right. And so what happened was that Laban was a schemer. He was a swindler. He was conniving. He was all those things that Jacob was right but about 50, 60 times worse, right? His uncle Laban was a narcissist and he was on a whole nother level, okay? And so what, what Laban was known for was doing bad business deals, okay? And these was, he, he was just shady. And so it's some people that we meet in life that I like to consider gamers. And you're like, oh, they're video gamers? No, they like to run games on people. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's nowhere, no other way to put it, right? They like to run games on people, right? And some people live for that. They literally thrive off of what kind of game they can run on somebody. And unfortunately, people that have that spirit of narcissism running through them, when they're running games on people, they're just sitting back. And like sometimes you can even see like a smirk on their face, you know, like. If it's uh, in a situation where it's a narcissistic man, he will sit back where and watch where two women and it could be his wife. And then like, 
a few mistresses and other uh, side chicks on the side, so to speak, is what they call them, right? So he got two or three side chicks who started off as his friends, right? And unknowingly moved over to the side chick side. If those three women are fighting with his wife, he's sitting back with a smirk on his face. So sometimes people like to run game on you and they like to set you up for game to be run on you, if that makes sense, right? And so what happens, like I said, they just get a thrill out of that. And then you saw it in scripture because you would say, well, may, well, maybe Laban wasn't like that. No, if you look each time, that's initially what we would probably think, right? And that's what I was thinking until the Holy Spirit started showing me even further that Laban had a certain pattern of behavior. And what happens is that when people have certain patterns of behavior and we see their patterns and then we decide like, you know what, we'll see the writing on the wall. But then all of a sudden we'll pretend like we're blind. I don't see that. You know, he's going out with two or three other women and I'm not it. You're the wife, but I don't see that. The writing will be on the wall. Big red, bold, spray painted letters. I don't see that. I don't know what's going on. I don't see it. But you see what I'm saying? And so when we see stuff, but we don't want to really see it, then what happens is that we will stay in situations longer than we really have to and suffer more damage on all levels, emotionally, uh, spiritually, mentally, physically. You see what I'm saying? Relationally, intellectually, there won't be any area, financially, sexually, all of it that won't be touched when we stay in things longer than we have to. And I know for some women, it's hard to get out right away. So some of them say, you know what? I think it'll be better for my children to stay. And it's, it's several things that's going on there with the thinking. Part of it is that unworthiness is leading the pack, right? The other part is that you're trauma bonded, right? Which means you've been going from the penthouse to the basement, the basement to the penthouse back and forth. And so you sealed the bond with the person who is narcissistic, right? And then you're probably soul tied, right? And you get soul tied to an individual because you've probably given your body away too soon, right? And then a soul tie is number simply a connection. So sometimes you can end up being soul tied to somebody because they're financially helping you. And or you can end up uh, being soul tied to someone just from sharing emotional things. And the next thing you know, you feel you find yourself like having withdrawal symptoms from not being with them, which trauma bonds also cause withdrawal symptoms, you know? So when you think about a soul tie, just think about a uh, having a gym shoe and triple tying a gym shoe, right? And, and one tie is the mind, the second tie would be the will, and then the third tie would be your emotions. So you've got all of that tied up into an individual. And so the, get, the first game that Laban pulled was with Abraham's servant, okay? So Abraham's servant goes to find a wife for Isaac, right? And so what happened was that Abraham's servant had made a uh, covenant with Abraham. And back then, the way they did the covenants in biblical times, they would have you to take your hand and put it under their thigh. So Abraham's servant made a covenant with Abraham that he was going to go and find a wife for Isaac. And then should something happen to Abraham, then it's like what he was basically making a covenant is that he was not going to get a foreign woman. He was going to go back to Abraham's homeland and get the wife from over there, right? Because Abraham wanted to make sure he said, don't take Isaac back over there. You see what I'm saying? Because God had already called him out of his homeland. And a lot of times we'll think, okay, I can just go back in this area and I'm going to be good. 
nine times out of 10, that's not going to happen. We cannot go back in a, into an environment that made us sick and then think that we're going to be okay. Yes, even if we healed, we're going to be better. But what happens is you go back into that environment. And then what happens is that you end up regressing. You end up starting to act the same way you did when you hung out uh, with that family member, friend, right? Business partner, those few people at church. You see what I'm saying? With their brokenness, you start to regress and interact in those relationships in the same manner that you interact with, with them way back then, right? And so it's different if that's an every blue moon thing. But when you go back to an environment that you are told you should totally be out of and stay out of, then you are, I guess I would say, reaping more drama upon your own soul, right? And so when Abraham's servant went over to uh, Abraham's homeland to find a uh, wife for Isaac, and then it says, now Rebecca had a brother named Laban and Laban ran out to meet the man at the spring. And as soon as he seen the ring and the braces on his sister's wrist, and when he heard his sister Rebecca's words, the man said this to me, he went to the man. He was standing there by the camels at the spring. So notice now what got Laban's eye. He saw the ring, right? He saw the bracelets on Rebecca's arm. So that tells you right then and there, okay? And I, I believe in the fact that scripture don't just put things out there just to be putting them out there. That was the first thing he noticed, right? And so then he probably started thinking in his health, in his uh, head rather, not in his health, but in his head, hmm, this is an opportunity. And so a lot of people that have that spirit of narcissism in them, they're opportunists. They look for an opportunity for them, right? So all of a sudden he sees gold on her and it's like, hmm, and Abraham must be wealthy over there. That's probably what started going on in his head, like, right? My brother-in-law must be wealthy if he got all of this. Uh, that he was able to put on her. So that show you right off the back. It said when he saw that, he saw her with that. Then he went over and talked to Abraham's servant, right? And so just to go through uh, Laban's pattern of behavior, like I said, after a while, we will start to notice a pattern of behavior. So the first thing that Laban would do is he would make an agreement slash covenant with the person, right? And then after making the agreement, what he would do is number two, he would make sure that he had gotten all the goods and or services from the person, right? Okay, then number three, <laughs> believe it or not, this is his pattern. Then number three, after getting all of the goods and or services, he would throw a party, right? And of course, they're eating and drinking, getting drunk, right? Probably got hangovers, all of, all of that. So that was number three, right? <laughs> he, made, he made the covenant, first of all. Then he got the goods and or services, right? Secondly, then thirdly, he had this big feast where they were eating and drinking and all of that and being merry is one of the Bible verses say, right? And then the last part of Laban's pattern was the morning after is what I called it. So the morning after meant that that very next morning after the party is when the person he made the covenant with found out what really was going to go down, which was that Laban was not going to follow through with the agreement. You see what I'm saying? So that was the last part of it. It was always after the morning after he held the feast is when they found out he wasn't going to go through with the deal. And so to, just to tell you about how people are and how Laban was literally, I'm just going to read real quick from this scripture. It says, Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We have no choice in the matter. Rebecca is here in front of you. Take her and go and let her be a wife for your master's son, just as the Lord has spoken. 
when uh, Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then he brought out objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave special uh, precious gifts to her brother and her mother. Then he and the men with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they got up in the morning, he said, send me to my master. So Abraham serving one playing around. It's like, okay, I didn't ate and drank. <laughs> Might've gotten a little drunk. You know, it, it's time for me to go now. Like, <laughs> let's stop playing. It's time for me to go. And so then uh, it says, but her brother and mother said, let the girl stay with us for about 10 days. Then she can go. So think about it. That was that very next morning, right? And But first he started off <laughs> saying, well, this is from the Lord. You know, we, we don't have any say in this. But after that eating and drinking, right, which is the eating and drinking and feasting was what? After he'd already got the goods. So after the eating and drinking, next morning, he finds out that Laban's like, no, she ain't leaving, so to speak, right? So let, let her stay 10 days. And then he was just like, no, 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 you know, we, we're not having it. So then what ends up happening is the the uh, Abraham servant, the servant says, I got to go. I got to be getting back to my master. So then that's when Laban makes up and says, well, let's ask her and see what she wants to do, see if she wants to go. And so then, of course, Rebecca agreed. But do you see what I'm saying? What uh, Laban's pattern of behavior was? He was real slick in what it was that he was doing. I mean, really, 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 really slick in what it was he was doing. And so it's a good thing that Abraham's servant was a good servant and that he kept thinking in his head, I, I need to get back. I can't be doing this. And when I took a look in scripture, it's a lot of different times where people asked other people to stay longer than they planned. And almost all of the times in scripture, I kid you not that I've seen so far, nothing good has happened as a result in those situations of people staying in places longer than they were supposed to stay. You see what I'm saying? And so you might say, well, I can understand Laban changing his mind because sometimes we agree to something and then we say later on, like, no, this one in my best interest. And which that has happened to me before. I've made agreements to do something. And then I thought about it. And it's like, okay, if I'm saying yes to this, that means I'm going to have to say no to three or four other things because I'm not superwoman where I can get all of these things done in one day. So then I have to end up going back and saying, I'm sorry, and not being able to do what I had promised to do. Because otherwise, then it's end up being a situation where either I'm hurting a relationship with somebody else or I'm hurting the relationship with myself, which is what? Practicing self-care and knowing when it's time for me to take a break, right? And so what happens is this wasn't the case. You would say, well, maybe since it just happened at once. No, there's several instances of Laban doing this. And even Jacob mentioned it. And the scripture didn't go into detail about all the other times because I guess it figured, okay, I've given you the pattern twice. So I guess between the pattern being there twice and uh, Jacob mentioning what happened several times, you should get the message. Laban was a gamer, right? He, he enjoyed scheming, swindling, and tricking people in bad business deals. And he was on a whole nother level than Jacob, than Jacob was, right? And that Jacob could even bargain, bargain for, so to speak. Like I said, Jacob had met his match, right? And the other thing I want to mention too, there are some things that we have where we could say, uh, some people have said, you know, 
you know, this is my stronghold. This is an area that I kind of have been struggling in and for a while. You might ask your small group uh, leader to pray for you and other members of the small group. You might ask some friends in your inner circle and let them in on some things, you know, uh, you know, I'm struggling with this and I'm struggling with that. Can you guys pr please pray for me? You know, uh, my kids got these issues, that issue, blah, blah, blah. You might share that with them. And in turn, they're able to pray for you. Right. And so there's some things that we struggle with. And then there's other things that we can end up really being lying about where we're saying that they're struggles and they're not struggles, they're lifestyles, which is two different things. Right. That's just for instance, if nine times out of 10, if it's a person that has a spirit of narcissism running through them, it's not like, like, okay, every blue moon, they cheat nine times out of 10, they are serial cheater. You will see them on Sunday. They're praising the Lord. Thank you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Soon they get into the car, they might hit their wife, cuss her out, all kind of stuff. And then somebody else come into the parking lot, get ready to pull off. Oh, hey, brother Johnson, how you doing? Hey, brother Jacob, what's going on? You know, Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. As soon as brother Jacob get in his car, pull off and they cussing their wife out and, and fighting her and all kind of stuff in the car and uh, devaluing and belittling her and the children and the, both the wife and the kids are suffering from all kind of narcissistic abuse. So like I said, with the uh, people that have that spirit of narcissism running through them, nine times out of 10, they are serial cheaters and they are living a double life. And a lot of times their wives don't have any clue and then once they have a clue, like I said, it becomes like that writing, the red writing on the wall that's been spray painted. You can't help but see it. <laughs> you can't help but read what's, what's there. But then you can turn your face and you can kind of ignore it and you can play it off and just be like, well, I don't see what I'm seeing. You see what I'm saying? And so then what happens is that when we don't pay attention to the writing on the wall, as I mentioned before, we end up being hurt because we stayed in something longer than we really had to, right? And so uh, the other thing is that when it came to uh, Laban, Laban was able to get a sense of narcissistic supply from Jacob, right? And you might wonder why did he get narcissistic supply from him? What happens when people have the spirit of narcissism in them that's running through them, right? They can get supply from other individuals who are in need. Usually when a person who is narcissistic comes into your life, they present themselves as the person who is the solution to all of your problems. And remember now, if you're thinking and any, any individual is a solution to all of your problems, right? Any individual that's a solution to all of your problems, that means that you have basically made a God, G-O-D, right? With small letters, you've made a God out of that individual. Anytime one individual is the answer to all of your problems, because the only person I know of that's the answer to all of my problems, that would be God himself. However, when I was in a narcissistically abusive relationship, I got to the point of making that individual the answer to all of my problems and not even realizing like, this is just flat out idolatry. You know, as I started healing and coming out of it, initially you don't see it, you know, you just get so caught up in it and you don't even realize you put that person on a pedestal over God. You've actually, uh, going to a whole nother level, so to speak, right? And so, like I said, Laban was getting narcissistic supply from Jacob. And the reason he was able to get narcissistic supply from Jacob is because of two reasons, right? First of all, he knew what had gone down with Jacob. And even though the scripture don't go into a whole lot of detail, we see right there where it says, when Laban heard the news about his sister's sons, Jacob, 
he ran to meet him, hugged him and kissed him. Then he took him to his house and Jacob told him all that had happened. So even though the scripture don't go through all that had happened because they already told us, it tells, tells us he told him all that had happened, right? That's all we need to know, right? And that's all Laban needed to stroke his ego. Ah, he needs me. You see what I'm saying? So all you got to do is have a, a, a narcissistic individual coming into your life. You running away from a situation. They present, they like, oh, you know, she need a place to stay. She need a place to stay for her and her kids. Mm, I, I got, I, I can run a game on her. You see what I'm saying? And then the other thing was that, so that was one, one thing, one way that Laban was able to run a, a muck on Jacob, right? Second reason is that Jacob was in love with Rachel and Laban knew it, right? So that was his other opportunity. You see what I'm saying? And so what he did is that, you know, Jacob decided I worked seven years for Rachel because he loved her just that much. And so guess what? That was opportunity number two for Laban. So first of all, he knew Jacob needed somewhere to live. If he went back home, Esau was probably going to kill him because he already told him everything that happened. Number two, Jacob loved him some Rachel, right? And so then he could use that as ammunition. So he had two things, right? So his narcissistic ego, I mean, he was able to really get that pumped up and have narcissistic supply because what? Because of Jacob, Laban was prospering in everything that he was doing because of Jacob working for him and because of uh, God's covenant with Abraham, right? And then the covenant from a with Abraham went down to Isaac and the covenant from Isaac went down to his two sons. It was Jacob and Esau, right? And so it's like, as far as them being favored and blessed and everything, they couldn't escape it because God had already made the covenant and God don't go back on covenants that he makes. You see what I'm saying? And so what happened, like I said, that's how Laban was able to keep his hooks in Jacob, so to speak, is because of those two reasons. He knew that Jacob was on the run. He needed somewhere to go, right? And then he knew, number two, that he loved Rachel. And so what happened, remember I told you about the pattern of Laban, right? Setting up those covenants, getting the products and or services rendered, right? And then throwing the feast. And then number four, reneging the morning after the feast, reneging on the covenant, right? And so it says, then Jacob said to Laban, since thy time is complete, give me my wife, since my time rather is complete. Give me my wife so I can go and sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. So here we go again, right? That evening, Laban took his daughter, Leah, and gave her to Jacob. So you know Jacob must have been drunk, and Laban knew it. And he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter, Leah, as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what is it that you've done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I've worked for you? Why have you deceived me? So then that's when Laban goes on and said, well, you know, that the oldest daughter is the one that's supposed to be what? She's the one that's supposed to go off in marriage first. And so even though all that was true, that should have been brought up in front. That should have brought up right, been brought up right from the jump. When you set up an agreement with somebody, you don't set up the whole agreement. Everybody sign on whatever kind of way you do, you know, the signature on sign on the dotted line and then later go and give somebody something different than what you promised and then say, well, you know what? I always, I, uh, according to my own uh, rules for my business, I always get rid of the old products first. <laughs> That's basically what he did to Jacob. And he was able to pull that. Why? Because of those two reasons. We can't get sucked into narcissist, to a narcissistic uh, individual's web unless they've got something that 
uh, that's important to us, that's holding us. So that's why we also have to watch what we tell individuals, how we tell them, and how much we tell how soon. You see what I'm saying? Because we just end up setting ourselves up for more and more drama unknowingly, right? And so by him knowing that he loved Rachel and him knowing that he needed somewhere to live because his brother was going to kill him if he went back home, he figured, hey, I can do this however many times I want to. <laughs> I'm one up in this situation. You see what I'm saying? And that's the same thing that will happen with you is that people will feel that they can do whatever it is they want to do to you when they know what your broken areas are, when they know what your dreams and life goals are, right? And when they know what's close to your heart, they can always run a game on you, right? And so what happened is that Laban had future faked Jacob, okay? He tied his heart and soul into working for Rachel, knowing that he was going to give him Leah, knowing the way that the whole thing ran as far as the oldest going first. He future faked him. And Jacob probably, you know, as the scriptures say, it seemed like it wasn't no time for him because he loved Rachel so much. It was just like, it only seemed like a few days, those seven years. You see what I'm saying? Because his heart was probably just thinking like, man, before you know it, I'm going to have my woman. You see what I'm saying? But then <laughs> Laban pulled a, a fast one on him, right? The morning after that party, is that's when he realized, hey, I got Leah. <laughs> I was just with Leah and not Rachel. And Laban knew that Jacob was going to probably have too much to eat and drink. Like I said, he was a pro at what he did. And a lot of times we think we can go and outsmart people, outsmart those individuals who have a spirit of narcissism run, running through them. They have a PhD in that. You see what I'm saying? So to be at that level all the time, we would have to take ourselves there to entangle ourselves in all types of things that these individuals are doing and thinking that we're going to get even with them. We're going to get in the mud with them. But guess what? we also going to end up with some of that spirit tainted on us because of the fact that we're not thinking about the fact these individuals, they are professionals at what they do. And we have to always keep that in mind, right? And so, like I said, Laban had the upper hand. And so what happened too is that Jacob finally had a come to Jesus moment. He finally woke up to what was going on. And so, uh, what led him to that moment is that he noticed Laban's countenance had changed, right? He noticed that, and he he didn't think like it was just so co a coincidence that all of a sudden, right after, this is not a coincidence either, right after Laban's countenance changed, God told Jacob, head back to your homeland, okay? And what I think was important too, though, this is what I think is important in scripture. It says, and Jacob saw, from Laban's face, that his attitude towards him was not the same as before. And that's the key word there, Jacob saw. Like the red lighting we talked, writing rather, on the wall that we talked about, that red spray paint writing that's on the wall that we pretend. I don't see him with another woman. I don't hear him talking to another woman. I don't hear them saying inappropriate things. I'm, I just don't see it. It says, and Jacob saw from Laban's face that his attitude toward him was not the same as before. Then the Lord said to him, go back to the land of your fathers and to your family and I will be with you. So it was right after he saw. And I think that if it got to the point where he saw it and ignored it, but didn't really see it, so to speak, you see what I'm saying? Then the Lord might not even come to him because he might've been like, you know what? He ain't even ready. He ain't even ready for this next step I got for him in order for him to reach his destiny. He is not ready. And what I think uh, is important too, that I wrote down here, uh, Jacob had two types of visions. 
when it says Jacob saw, when we see things, we have a spiritual eye, we have spiritual eyes, right? And then we have our physical eyes. Well, Jacob saw in both aspects because his spiritual eyes, he physically saw the look on, the look and countenance on Laban. And remember, we talked about that countenance is a combination of a person's attitude, their facial expressions, right? Towards you, right? Condescending, contemptuous behavior, just all of that, just they're interacting with you. The whole thing has changed and done a 360, so to speak, right? So it says that he saw, so he physically saw that, but then he also saw with spiritual eyes, right? He also had to see with spiritual eyes because we can physically see something and we can just keep on going about where we <laughs> on and on about our business. We really can. We can see something and go like, oh, that says stop. Oh, and then we can just keep driving and be in an accident, right? That's what happens when a person countenance changes on us. We see it and can just keep going on about our business. And the next thing you know, we've got a really big problem on our hands. Or we can see it and really see it, not just physically, but also spiritually and discern something's wrong here. Things are only going to get worse. This person's whole entire attitude, their countenance has changed to me. I need to get out of here. I need to start making a plan of escape, so to speak, right? And so, like I said, I think that's the only reason why God was able to work with him. If we're in the mode where we actually see and we're not like, I don't see anything and it's saying stop. And like I said, we keep going. We put our foot on the gas. And the next thing you know, we've hit another car, right? We got an accident, right? Because we are doing what? Pretending like we don't see what we see, right? And so what happens is that Right after the Lord talked to uh, Jacob, he ended up having a meeting with both of his wives. It says, Jacob had Rachel and Leah called to the field where his flocks were. He said to them, I can see from your father's face that his attitude towards me is not the same as before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know <laughs> that with all my strength, I have served your father, that he has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. Remember I said, the scripture didn't go into all those different times. So other than Abraham's servant and, and, and uh, running a game on Jacob the one time, as far as him getting Rachel, 10 times he changed his wages, okay? But God has not let him harm me. If he said the spotted sheep will be your wages, then all the, the sheep were born spotted. If he said the streaked sheep will be your wages, then all the sheep were born streaked. God has taken away your father's herds and given them to me. So basically he recognized and, and, and he also realized that God was with him. You see what I'm saying? The sheep that he had agreed that he wanted, those are the ones that the Lord was like multiplying in for Jacob. And that's the only reason why Laban was able to uh, be successful and prosper is because of the fact that the Lord was with Jacob. And so some people that we get hooked up with that's narcissistic, the only reason why they're prospering is because of us being with them. That doesn't mean we need to stay with them. It's just that that's the reason. And a lot of times they see that and they know that. And so that's why it becomes hard to replace uh, those individuals who are empaths and who tr truly have put their lives and invested their lives into uh, the person who is narcissistic because those individuals really love them. It's just that because of the narcissist's only own um, their own flaws and brokenness, they were not able to see it. You see what I'm saying? They don't even love themselves. So it's so much self-hate and self-loathing 
that they're not even able to see uh, what they have right in front of them. You see what I'm saying? Even if somebody like knocked them over the head and said, you got a V8, they still would not see it, right? And so the other thing I want to uh, make sure that I bring to your attention is that a little bit before it says, and Jacob saw from Laban's face that the attitude had changed. It was not like before. It also mentions about a conversation that Jacob heard that he overheard that Laban's sons were having, okay? It says, now Jacob heard what Laban's sons were saying. Jacob has taken all that was our father's and has built this wealth from what belonged to our father. So in this uh, particular set of scriptures here, this is a projection because uh, Laban was benefiting from Jacob, right? And although, yes, Jacob was prospering back and forth and in and out, so to speak, right? It still was projection. The second part I want to help you to understand is that it was gaslighting because they made it seem like Jacob took what belonged to their father. But what happened is in the previous chapter, Laban asked Jacob what he wanted as his wages. And when Jacob expressed what he wanted, Laban's like, okay, I'll make sure that those ones, all the ones that come out, they're black and or streaked and spotted, those ones are yours. So you see what I'm saying? How gaslighting comes into play when it changes the reality of the situation, where they make it seem like Jacob stole from Laban when that's what uh, Jacob and Laban had decided would be his wages. But see, one, one thing that happens when a person gaslights your motives, you don't have any way to prove that. It's your word against the other person's word. And if that person is narcissistic, there's no point in that. Remember, we talked about that. That person has a PhD and what they're doing. And when everybody else is running around with maybe uh, an AA degree, the associate's degree, you know, we might have like a high school degree because an average person is not trying to go in and uh, have their mind to go to that type of depth and energy. And like I said, if you do, then that means you're going to be wrestling with that narcissistic spirit and it's going to be on you. And so what happens to nine times out of 10 is that if we're not careful and we're in groups, particularly small groups and inside of congregations at churches and even at jobs with these narcissistic systems, what ends up happening is that not standing up for what you believe in will lead a gaslighting spirit into coming inside of you and you end up being the toxic one because you are being pulled because of confirmation bias. You feel like you need to pull and go along with the side, with the majority of the group. You don't want to be the odd man out, the odd ball out, so to speak, right? But then what, what, what has to happen, though, you have to deal with that later on. I was part of a scheme to gaslight an individual, right? To hurt an individual, I was part of that scheme. So you got to be careful. We all have to be careful of going with the crowd instead of having the Lord to convict us with whether something is right or wrong. Because we've had two instances where it has happened. One in scripture where we had the total of 12 spies that went over into the promised land, right? Then they came back. 10 of them was like, oh, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. We're never going to do it. So all the people believed the 10. But it was two of them that was like, well, we can, we can handle them. We can take them out. And the two that said that, that was what Joshua and Caleb. And so what started off as God wanting to take all the Israelites over into the promised land they didn't even all make it. And it was because of the fact they listened to the 10 instead of the two. And then you got the situation where you have King Jehoshaphat and King Ahab, and you got 400 false prophets. And then you got a spirit, a lying spirit that volunteered to go into those 400 
false prophets, not lying spirits, but you got one lying spirit that volunteered and went in those prophets, right? And so then you also had Micaiah, a prophet of God. So either King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat was going to listen to Micaiah or King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat was going to listen to 400 false prophets. And they chose to, to uh, listen to the larger number. I can understand King Ahab, right? Because he was what? A vulnerable narcissist, right? And he liked to, um, he was married to Jezebel. So it was no wonder that he did that. However, King Jehoshaphat was uh, a person who was of the Lord, right? He served God and took down all of the graven images and all of that stuff. So he got caught up. And it also goes back to what those bad business deals, making uh, an alliance with someone that's a fake ally and someone that's narcissistic. And then what happened is King Jehoshaphat literally had to cry out for his life because King Ahab got ready to throw him under the bus, right? And so that's what would happen when you are in a business deal with somebody that's narcissistic nine times out of 10, you got to watch your back because the next thing you know, you're going to be what? You're going to be getting ready. To, they're going to get ready to throw you under the bus before you know it, right? And so, like I said, getting back to talking about lifestyles and having struggles. A lot of times we will say something is uh, our struggle when it really is a lifestyle. And there's two different things. And with narcissists, they have uh, double lives that they live. And this is at all times. So, you know, uh, Sister Johnson and Brother Johnson might see the deacon side, right? And the, the person who's serving at the food pantry, who's volunteering uh, for children's ministry, right? Who's there real early to help open the church up and greeting all the visitors. I mean, in, in the men's choir and every different ministry at church. But they don't even know <laughs> that Brother Davis is at home uh, beating on his wife and is a serial che cheater, right? That's his lifestyle. And so a lot of times when we get that mixed up, that's when we fall into problems, right? And so like I said, Laban had the upper hand with Jacob because of those two things. Jacob needed somewhere to live, right? And if he went back home, his brother was more than likely going to kill him. And then the second thing is that Jacob ended up um, loving, falling in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. And so he was able to hold those two things over his head, right? And so one thing about it, like I said before, when a person's countenance has changed on you and you keep trying to make it work and think about it, even when we talked about Saul and David, think about it. David kept going back because, hold on just a second, I got to get a sip of water. David kept going back because he was trauma bonded and so tied to Saul. So even if he didn't want to go back, he kept going back, right? Because Saul was like, what? The spiritual father and a natural father he never had. So he kept going back. And so it's like, and he saw that Saul's countenance had changed ever since the lady started singing, right? And so what happens, we see accountants have changed. And then we start going like with David and Saul's situation. Oh, they tried to throw a spear at me. Huh? Wow, it happened twice. And then the next day, oh, wow, they tried it again. And it's just like us going, huh, I wonder whether they're going to use an arrow next. Is it going to be a gun? Is it going to be a knife? We don't have to wonder. Once a person's countenance has changed, we don't need to sit and wonder what they're going to use next to go against us. You see what I'm saying? And that's how Satan will get our mind going because we're so trauma bonded and so tied to the situation. You don't even realize that what you're doing is kind of like delusional within itself to sit and try to start pondering. I wonder what they're going to try to do next. 
Are they going to call my mama? Are they going to go to my, you know, to my friends' houses? You don't even need to wonder all of that. <laughs> when a countenance has changed, when that person has uh, changed their countenance, their slash attitude towards you, that's when it's time to make steps to get out of there. That's when it's time to be in communion with the Lord and see what the Holy Spirit reveals to you by taking what I call all the time that be still and no moment so you can become self-aware and gain clarity. And that can lead to a come to Jesus moment, which is a revelation on what do I need to do next? How can I make my exit? And a lot of times the Lord will open up that window of opportunity for us to leave. And then you start thinking because of the soul tie, the trauma bond, hmm, maybe it's not so bad at all. And you know it's bad because they've thrown spears at you like with King David and Saul. You see what I'm saying? And the next day it happened. And then, you know, instead what? You don't want to wait around to see if it's going to be an arrow, a knife, a gun, a rope. I mean, you know, you could just go on and on in your head about what could possibly happen. And that's an area you don't even want to go to, like I said, because that's going to an area of your mind in a spiritual setting of toxicity. And that's definitely a level that none of us want to go to in our minds. You see what I'm saying? Those individuals, unfortunately, with narcissism, they have to battle all kind of demons. We don't want to go down in the mud and in the dirt with them. You want to make a, a plan, right? And when God opens up that window of opportunity, it's usually like he did when it came to Moses, right? Being able to get the Israelites out of Egypt. The Red Sea parted and either they walked through before the Lord closed it back up or they missed their opportunity. And that's usually what happens when a person's countenance change. And then we start trying to reason with ourselves or maybe, well, I don't know. Well, it might not get so bad. I know he did this and that before. And I went to the hospital a few times. We don't even need to do that. Make a plan. <laughs> the window is open. The, the, the dry sea has split. And so either you walk through at that time or you miss your opportunity at that time. You have to wait again, right? And so what happens is that what also tripped me out, we got Jacob finally realizing I'm just going to peace out of here. I'm going to leave. He already had told uh, Jacob. He already had told Leah and Rachel, right? Jacob had already called them out to the field and told them about uh, his dad, uh, their dad, rather, changing the wages on him, right? Ten times. And then he also expressed to them about how his countenance has changed. And I thought it was something how the first scripture say Jacob saw his countenance change. Then it mentions about the Lord telling him to head back home. Then he calls them out to the field. And then he mentions to them, your father's attitude has changed. Slash countenance has changed against me, right? So it's two times. And that means that that was the theme that uh, the scripture wants us to really know, hone in on right there. That's a light motif where it's like, this is the theme. That countenance has changed. So now what are you going to do? So Jacob decides to take Leah and Rachel and we're getting out of here. We're no longer going to stay here, except what he did is that he didn't mention to Laban what he was doing. So instead of him saying like, bye, you know, I'll see you later, blah, blah, blah. He took them and their children, right? And the cattle and everything that he worked for and peaced out. So what happens? Laban finds out about it and goes after him. You see what I'm saying? And so then Laban confronts him. But when he confronts Jacob, what does he do? He starts gaslighting him. And so what happens is that uh, Jacob had to come up with some excuse. Well, not really. Well, excuse kind of like excuse slash um, reasoning, I guess I would say in a sense. 
as to why he left. It says, and Jacob, and I'm reading from Genesis, the 31st chapter, and the, which one is that? The 20th verse. And Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, not telling him that he was fleeing. So Jacob did deceive him by not telling him, right? And he fled with all his possessions, crossed the Euphrates, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. So he took his relatives, pursued him for seven days, overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night. Watch yourself, God warned him. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. <laughs> when Laban overtook Jacob, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban and his relatives also pitched their tents in the hill country of Gilead. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You've deceived me, taking my daughters away like prisoners of war. Why did you secretly flee from me? Deceive me and not tell me. I would have sent you away with joy and singing, tambourines and lyres, but you didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters. You've acted foolishly. I could do you great harm. But last night, the God of your father said to me, watch yourself. So this is the second time, right? Another light motif. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you've gone off because you long for your father's family, but why have you stolen my gods? Jacob answered, I was afraid. For I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. So I love how Laban gaslit Jacob, right? Because what he said is that he made it seem, he said, why did you secretly flee from me? That was true. Jacob did secretly flee from him, right? And then he said, now tell me, he said, I would have sent you away with joy and singing tambourines and lyres. I could do you great harm, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then I can do you great harm. What happens every time? We already talked about this. What happened every time Laban threw a party? The next morning, right? We already said that that's the morning after scene, so to speak, is when you found out that Laban was going to renege on his deal. And a couple of chapters before, they actually took off, right? Deceptively took off. Jacob had already expressed to Laban that he was ready to leave. And guess what Laban did? He begged him to stay. You see what I'm saying? And that's when he asked him, what did he want uh, for his wages? But he had already, Jacob had already expressed to Laban that he was ready to go. So as far as Jake, uh, Laban acting like, well, we could have done this peacefully, it's, you know, it's almost like, well, what else does a person need to do? If they're telling you they're ready to go and you're still trying to make them stay, and then you're saying, well, you know, I've been successful because of you being here, blah, blah, blah. Okay. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. I'm ready to leave. I'm ready to leave out of your house. So it's like, it's kind of catchy in this situation because yes, they could have said, we're leaving, you know, we're going to go on. And at the same time, Jacob already saw Laban's pattern of behavior. He already saw how Laban was. He already knew the one, two, three, four that we talked about. And number four means he reneges on his agreement. So why go through all of that? So I guess he probably figured the only thing for me is to get out of here because I'll never get out if I don't leave now. You see what I'm saying? So on one side of it, we say, we could say, well, at least he could have said something. And then on the other side, he knew it wasn't going to go well. But then the fact that Laban said, I could have done you harm. Harm for what? <laughs> Jacob had worked for the two daughters, 14 years, remember? Seven years for Rachel, which he got Leah instead. Then he had to work another seven years for Rachel. So he worked 14 years for Rachel and he worked uh, six years for the flocks. 
And what happens after Laban's like, well, I could have thrown a party and all this type of thing. That's when Jacob um, brings it to Laban's attention. Like, look, I worked 20 years for you. And then he also mentions once again, the same thing he told his wives. He said, he's changed my wages 10 times. You see what I'm saying? He tells Laban that. But the thing about it is Laban doesn't even pay that any attention. <laughs> he don't care. He, Laban does not even care what it is that Jacob is saying. He goes straight to, once again, the daughters are my daughters, the sons, my sons, the flocks, my so flocks. Everything you see is mine. So what does that tell you? My, 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 and mine. That's that narcissistic ego that's spewing and that spirit that's coming out. Because a lot of times, for some reason, people with that spirit of narcissism, they will start talking about me, 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 my, 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 and mine. But do you see how that's gaslighting as well? Jacob worked for those two for his two wives, which was Laban's daughters, right? He worked for the flock. That was his wages. That's what him and Laban decided on. But all of a sudden, Laban changes and say, it says, the daughters are my daughters, the sons, my sons, the flocks, my flocks. Everything you see is mad. But what can I do today for these daughters of mine? Well, for the children they born. Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I. <laughs> Let it be a witness between the two of us. So surprisingly, they were able to make a covenant then. Then you might wonder, well, why wasn't Jacob able to do it all those other times? Remember now, <laughs> the Lord came to Laban at night. I'm going back and reading it. But God came to Laban, Laban the Arab man, in a dream at night. Watch yourself. God warned him, don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So you know what would have happened, right? Had God not warned Laban, he could have possibly tried to kill Jacob. Remember once his countenance, his countenance had already changed. So he was just one step away from like malice and then from murder. So that was, if the Lord had not intervened and come to Laban at night in the dream, then that covenant would have been a the next morning type of thing, right? <laughs> and so what happens next in the story is that Laban ends up staying there in that area for a while and Jacob ends up inviting him and the rest of the family to have a meal, right? Because this was on Jacob's terms. And then Laban left them, right? He kissed them. He got up in the morning, kissed them and left. <laughs> but we know how uh, Laban's parties turned out, right? But Jacob was one up in this sense because God had already warned Laban and Laban knew, right? He already knew that um, God was on Jacob's side. He knew that from the time that Abraham's servant came there looking for Rebekah and they had all of these wealth, uh, all of this wealth and all of this, uh, the flocks, material possessions, the gold and all of this stuff that he got as gifts. So he knew what he was working with and he wasn't, there's no way in the world he was going to go and try to cross Jacob at that point, right? And but the like I said, the tripped out thing to me is that just to notice how he gaslit him and made it seem like he was running away with his daughters. He's stolen his daughters and stolen the grandsons and as if he had uh stole his flocks. And so like I said, going one back one once again back to what we were saying. When someone gaslights you about your intentions, there is nothing you can do to try to prove that your heart was not in the direction that they say that it's in. And the same thing happened with Nehemiah. When Nehemiah was building a wall and they tried to give him to meet them in the plain of Ono, and a messenger was sent four times the same way as what the scripture says. 
Then the fifth time, they sent the messenger a different way, accusing Nehemiah and his team, right, of basic like um, treason, so to speak. They accused them, right, of running amok and trying to overthrow the king and the government. And so it really had to be a situation where the, Nehemiah knew that the Lord was on his side and that he was just thinking in his mind, I'm just not going to even worry about it. I just have to know the Lord is with us. Because how was he going to prove what his motives were? It was going to be his word against Geshem, Sanballat, and all of those other false prophets and or real prophets, right, that they had pulled in with a tribal gaslighting stunt. You see what I'm saying? And so what happens is that when a person, uh, once again, when their countenance has changed, that's when it's time for you to take the necessary steps of that be still and no moment. Coming out of that energizer bunny mode where you keep going and going, sitting there, having a be still and no moment and trying to figure out, Lord, what do I need to do from here, right? Because what, like I said, you can either have the come to Jesus moment, uh, actually have the be still and no moment, which leads to a come to Jesus moment, or you can do the, sit there and be like, okay, I'm going to sit here like a sitting duck, and then just try to figure out what they're going to do next. <laughs> what what uh, tools they're going to do uh, use next, rather, to try to get you. Okay, it was a spear, and a knife, and a gun. We don't even need to do that, right? And so what I want to leave you with is when you have your red, red sea opportunity, when you have that red sea opportunity now, don't miss it, right? The waters are split, the, the dry land is there, and it's just ready and waiting for you to walk through it, right? Remember, you are enough and you do not have to stay in relationships where a person's countenance has changed towards you, waiting to see how far they're going to go before they take your literal life. Reclaim your power, soul, and identity. And then reclaim the power, soul, and identity of your calling. Grab your keys to the kingdom and get your inheritance. And I hope that you have a very Merry Christmas. I also want to remind you that we do the A-Tie-I method, which means that we wear ties so we can make an impact. And that means that if anything in this video was helpful for you, if it added any value to your life and you know somebody else that's out there struggling and dealing with somebody else whose countenance has changed, right? And they need to know what to do. How about sharing it with them, right? And so uh, I want you to have a very Merry Christmas. Again, my name is Katina Horton. And I am the love and freedom toxic relationship recovery coach. He Until next time, be blessed. By earth, there was a God. They call him the Father. And there was a
makes no sense I'm trying to do it on my own for me 